Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stamor Major, and welcome to part three of the ABC of boating or the Encyclopedia of boating or whatever on earth we're going to call it by the end of it. We're going slowly through the alphabet and picking a new subject for each letter that relates to sailing and being on the water. And then we're going to have about an hour, hour and a half of me just talking about it and it's going to be off the cuff. So we did the one on boating in episode 38. We did A's for anchoring first, of course, which got a lot of good responses. Boating was interesting, I thought, uh, finding out that people have been on the water potentially for 900,000 years. I didn't, did not know that before I uh, did the bit of research. When I did the one for boating, it was such a wide area to discuss that I did end up having the Wikipedia page for boat uh, alongside me on the computer so I could kind of take a little bit of direction from that. Otherwise, I'm just going to be yakking on for hours and hours. Uh, this one though, back to doing it off the cuff. What we worked out on the first one, what I, I stipulated was the idea for this, was the fact that if somebody is meant to be professional in a particular area, does that mean that they really know this stuff or does that mean that they're good at looking it up? If you're a lawyer or if you're a doctor, it may be that you don't know the exact answer there and then, but that you can wander off to your uh, research area or you can wander off to other colleagues or you can go to the library or whatever you need to do and you can go and get the information not so easily done as a sailor you need to kind of have this stuff in your head although of course communications are getting better and better and uh, you, these days you kind of can look it up but I don't know anybody that can look it up in the instant so cooking is one of the ones which it was funny when Phil put it to me, Phil Backman suggested this, one of the listeners and a guy that I've uh, sailed a couple of transats with, fantastic wooden boat builder from uh, from uh, from Buzzards Bay, I believe, is uh, where he's uh, hanging out. Uh, hi, Phil, and then to everyone that's working with him. Um, this area is, is so important on a boat. Yeah, it's not the mechanics of how the rudder works or the sails or, you know, chains or things that are like mechanical parts of the boat. But what do we do when we go out boating? We want to go and have a good time. There's very few people who are involved in going out onto the water who have to be out there for some reason, who just have to be in a boat to get from A to B, unless you're in a kind of I don't know, some kind of escaping from somewhere political refuge type situation. Most people are on their boat because they want to have a good time. And cooking becomes an essential part of that. If you haven't twigged onto this, uh, it's maybe this is an opportunity to just kind of uh, get you thinking a little bit and thinking about how this could become part of what you're doing. So I say I'll be doing this off the cuff, which thank God that means I don't have to look at all the other computers that are sitting here because uh, that starts to get a little bit... Um, it <laughs> starts to be a, get a bit hilarious for me after a while when I've got like my iPad and my phone and the, the desktop and everything else. So it's just off the cuff. So if I make mistakes, then you have to write to me and tell me. That's the point, right? The idea is how much do I know? So I've got a couple paper notes, which I wrote down just to keep me uh, stretched out here. Just just individual words, really. And it starts off with history of stoves. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a whole damn podcast on its own, isn't it? We don't have to go too far. Obviously, there's been a bit of an evolution over time. When people first went to sea, even in the Joshua Slocum stuff that we're listening to as we're going through sailing alone around the world, the Fujian warriors, which he's having so many issues with at Cape Horn as he as he rounds Cape Horn on the first part of his voyage around the world in 1895, each canoe, canoe there has a brand, what he calls a brand in the bottom of it, a little metal or, or some kind of stone flat surface that they've got uh, embers going so that they can actually cook things up. They can move fire from where they were to the next place they're going to be going. An easy way of uh, 
shortcutting a process that they may be involved in. So their short voyages are characterized by the fact that they carry fire with them as a, as a resource on board the boat. We've gone a little bit further on from that, of course, but early boats going to sea, ships crossing, you know, what, what were they eating? What were they doing? Well, if they did have some kind of cooking arrangements on board, it was more than likely initially fired by wood. Nice and simple, wood stove. You can get wood stoves on boats now. I'm here in the uh, in Nova Scotia, of course. It's very cold in the winter. There are people, though, who are out and about um, sailing in the winter in these uh, colder climes, American Northeast as well. Uh, sorry, American Northwest out in uh, Oregon and Washington State that way. They're on the water, you know, sort of four seasons of the year, maybe not the very worst of it. And a wood stove is possible that you can... Um, get it, you know, get it going and, and you've got a nice insulated area around it, tiles on the floor and all the rest of it, some little stovepipe that goes up, maybe a, a Stevenson uh, chimney on the top, which is the little one that looks like a H on the on the top of the boat to create good draft and, and uh, get the stove working and keep the cabin free of smoke and then on deck carry that quickly away. So a wood stove would be something which would be absolutely appropriate. Obviously, kindred to that would be like a coal burning stove. Coal has been... Oh God, coal burning stove if I can actually get my teeth in. Um, those have been used when uh, the ship has got coal on board for some kind of ancillary power plant. Um, coal obviously very much out of favor now because the amount of um, hydrocarbons it releases into the atmosphere but a pretty steady and pretty uh, reliable way of, of creating heat if you need to. Uh, the other thing which of course they would have had in some more uh, specific situations is is uh, whale oil, whale blubber rendered down. A lot of the ships that were going out from the Chesapeake, from from Nova Scotia, going all the way down the Atlantic and round Cape Horn and then up into the Pacific, these ships would be engaged in three to five year expeditions uh, hunting for whales. Now we may feel whatever we feel about that, but that was the, the notion of the time, that was what was happening. And of course, uh, they were rendering the uh, the blubber down into whale oil for, for lamps anyway. And so it was a perfect uh, way to be able to heat things up. And I remember going to Mystic Seaport. They've got a whaling ship there. And they've got the station there where a big kind of brick station with, you know, have wood and or coal and, and fire up these stoves and uh, and then render big vats of, uh, of spermaceti uh, down into whale oil. That it was kind of built into the galley on the one that I saw. So lots of different ways of getting things hot. Uh, as we've come along now, we've got a few more options. There are some uh, yachts and, which have uh, primer stoves, which is where you've got like a kerosene. You pressurize it up, get um, probably get the cup uh, heated up a little bit with a little bit of um, methylated spirits or denatured alcohol. And then once that cup is hot, you can uh, engage the pressure from the uh, pressurized uh, kerosene supply light it and then you've got yourself a nice atomized jet of uh, uh, vapored uh, uh, creosote, no, <laughs> kerosene, all these things, you know. These used to be such a part of our lives, you know, you creosote the fence and using paraffin and all this stuff. I hardly get anywhere near these things anymore. Well, Primus, I've got to say, I've done a lot of um, open boat voyages with, uh, with Primus stoves when I first worked for Outward Bound. And very quickly, we moved away from doing that because, of course, there is an issue where you can, uh, if you make a mistake, end up with a, an out-of-control fire with uh, a material floating around in the bottom of the boat, even floating on top of the water in the bilges, which is on fire, which is not great. So then we moved over to using alcohol stoves. And alcohol stoves, I don't think they get 
that much usage. Uh, we actually on Challenger have an, uh, an alcohol stove. We have an Arigo stove. I had a hell of a time with it when we first got it. It was extraordinarily expensive. I believe it was like 500 US. And by the time we bought the hanging brackets for it and all the rest of it, it was like 750 US. We finally installed it. I've got to say the first time we ever used it, the knobs melted off the thing and it was completely useless thereafter. But of course we, we innovated and, and, and worked out how to get past that problem, put new knobs on it. And it's been in use now for, well, I guess that was 2016 we started using that. We obviously didn't do anything last year. So I'd say like three years. Alcohol is very, very good because you can put out a fire with alcohol with, with water. You can throw a bucket over it. You can throw, you know, even like the contents of a saucepan or a water bottle onto it and it will put it out on a person or on the stove itself. But it is very slow when it's doing what it's doing. And that was a massive frustration for us to begin with until we realized that you could uh, use a pressure cooker. And it was uh, on one of the voyages out from Newfoundland. Uh, we had a lady come on board. I think it was Gina, wasn't it, who came on board and educated us on exactly how to uh, cook on such a, a low heat. And uh, therein we started using a modern uh, Lagostina pressure cooker, a small one. Well, man, we, we have cooked all over the place with that now. We've cooked every which way. The, the stove itself, is, or the, the pan rather, has been uh, <laughs> gone through the wars a number of times. But on that low, low heat, um, you can you can get really nice meals going. I've had like lamb stew with potatoes in the middle of the Atlantic on a cold night, uh, all coming from an alcohol uh, stove, which was and you know and the other ten people in the boat did as well. So alcohol definitely has its uh, its place in all of this. For me personally, um, for me personally, I like alcohol stoves because of the safety factor, um, and also you can get the 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 fuel from kind of anywhere here in Nova Scotia. They use methyl hydrate to de-ice the uh, airlines on semi-trucks, on, on big trucks that are going down the road. The airlines on the back of it, easy way to de-ice them um, is to use methyl hydrate. And so that means it's available at gas stations and you can easily then buy the fuel that you need to run the uh, stove right there in the gas station. If you're trying to look for alcohol, denatured alcohol, it's a lot more difficult. There are, I know certainly in the UK, trying to get denatured alcohol is very difficult because um, the government limits the access to it because, of course, um, that kind of alcohol is uh, like that's the one that makes you blind. If you start drinking that instead of actual alcohol, then uh, you're, you're going to make yourself blind. You can be very, very ill and uh, they, they limit how much you can get to it. But if you're in the on the continent or further afield, then uh, alcohol can be a, a good option. But yeah, we've burnt all sorts. We've burnt... Um, what have we bought? Methyl hydrate, methylated spirits, denatured alcohol, lamp oil. Uh, we've put all th sorts of things through that thing. It, it barely even looks like anything that Arigo produced anymore. It's so Mad Max now. It's uh, it's kind of out of sight. Um, the other one, of course, is LPG. Uh, liquid petroleum gas being used as a fuel on boats is... Uh, that's, that's not new. It does come with a lot of uh, caveats on, on, on safety. The, the issue with liquid petroleum gas is that it's, it's heavier than air. So if you have a leak, it's going to go downwards. And storing all the fuels for these stoves uh, you know, is a burden to the boat. It's weight. It's, uh, it's got to be easy to get to so you can use it when you're doing what you're doing. But you have to be very careful with LPG that when it's stored, uh, there is a lower vent option in that locker which still takes the lpg over the side of the boat um, these days the rules are it's got to be stored on deck or in a, a, a gravity vented locker that's sealed at the top 
Now, that can be easily achieved, of course, and you can have flexible rubber piping, which is absolutely safe, and you can have battery solenoids to cut off the supply, and there's all sorts of things you can do. But if those systems start to break down, you can end up very easily in a tricky situation where you have got an unknown amount of explosive gas low down in your boat. So what can you do about that? Well, a lot of North American boats have bilge blowers. Um, these are electric motors which are ignition protected so that when the motor starts up there's no chance for spark and that bilge blower is connected to ducting which then carries the liquid petroleum gas out and off the boat. This has become something which is, I think it became a lot more prevalent in North America because back in the day you had those atomic four gasoline engines that are powering things which I've had a boat with an atomic four engine I never ran it in anger I actually chose to put an outboard on the back of the boat rather than mess around with the uh, gasoline inside the boat because just too many parts of what was going on with that engine were unknown I love classic cars I have one sitting in my garage right now but my garage smells kind of oily and petrolly which means that there is a uh, there is something there which is giving off uh, liquid petroleum uh, gas vapors and that means the garage has to be uh, a little windows go be open all the time on the boat we all know unfortunately that there have been instances where those fumes have uh, caught and that could be from a atomic four engine it could be from other things on the boat or it can be from lpg and then when it catches you get into a situation where unfortunately that pressurized tank which is holding the lpg is holding the gas uh, will become a blevy. A blevy is a kind of explosion caused by a, um, a, a, a pressurized container which explodes. The gas itself obviously has a massive uh, risk for ignition, but when it's contained inside of some kind of uh, bottle apparatus which is pressurized, when the fire gets its way up the pipe and into that container and it goes off, it goes off with bomb-like power. So, uh, L the results of boats that have had a blevy on board that have had an LPG fire, uh, not not good. So we've got to be very, very cautious with that. And if there's any doubt at all that you can't keep LPG safe or that the hoses and the solenoids and the cutoff valves or any part of it is leaking, then you must uh, you must remove that system for the boat or do not use it. So I'll give you a, a home... <laughs> home piece of advice uh first first person piece of advice i was doing some training at a sailing school on the south coast of the uk i think that's accurate enough without being accurate down to who and where it was but i can see the people's faces in my heads right now in, in my heads <laughs> that's my schizophrenia coming out there i can see the people's faces in my head this was me this happened i have always laughed at the idea that anybody would go looking for a gas leak with a lighter it's just beyond stupid isn't it like why would you possibly do that and yet <laughs> here we were so myself and another group of very experienced sailors i'm going to keep this very vague so there's no way of working out what it was this was or where we were but we were going to do some training for our to become day skipper instructors for the rya course so yeah it's a it's a it's a basic qualification and we're going to go and learn how to be the instructors we're going to go and be schooled but everybody there had fifty thousand miles and i know one of the guys had like two hundred thousand miles the students themselves were in similar experience on the water all with uh, uh ocean master i think we all had yeah all commercially endorsed ocean masters so we know what's going on so we get down to the boat that's going to be our boat for the few days we're doing this training and we step on board and as soon as we put 
our heads down inside the cabin. It's like a 36 or 40 footer or something. It immediately stinks of gas. So we immediately leave the boat. We will get back on the dock. We go up to the office and say, that boat stinks of gas. And the lady behind the counter said, well, I, I, don't, I don't think it can really. You must be mistaken. It's like <laughs> looking around, there's like six of us. We've got easily over 750,000 miles between us. Like, no, we're pretty sure it's gas. So she's, oh, she's kind of so much hassle to have to deal with this issue. So she says, well, I'll send, you know, whoever it is, Patrick or whatever down to go and um, check this out. So Patrick, the, uh, the maintenance guy, also rolling his eyes, Gah, customers, eh? He comes wandering down to the uh, dock, goes on board the boat, and then we are craning closer to look at what he's doing because, you know, we're staying out of it. That's our responsibility level on this one. But obviously, we've all got an idea of what's happening. And just unbelievably, he is, uh, he's got a lighter and he is uh, waving the lighter all around the edges of the stove looking for a gas leak. <laughs> like, we're all pounding on the side of the boat. Get out of there. Like, it was a little bit of aggressive of like, get off your own boat and get up to see your own boss and go and get a better idea of what's going on. Um, we then stepped onto the boat to try and uh, turn off the gas cylinders, which is the only thing that we could do. There was two gas cylinders in a locker at the back of the cockpit. And that was where we discovered that the gas cylinder was not correctly uh, made onto its uh, threaded uh, connection. And uh, that's where the leak was. The leak was in the cylinders and then the wind was coming slightly over the stern. And there was so much gas coming out of the locker that its vent was not carrying it all over the back of the boat. It was coming out the top of the locker and the wind was taking it inside the cabin. So we disconnected all the cylinders and took them off the boat. We then vented everything inside the boat. We then opened everything up, took all the floorboards up and we left the boat for over an hour, like wafting the floor. Now, interestingly on that situation, no LPG sensor, although it was a commercially registered boat for doing this training, there was no LPG sensor on board. Um, or certainly not one that went off in that situation. So don't believe that people are expert, expert in what they're doing. Don't ever believe that somebody else has been as safe as you might with LPG systems. This is a thing that you can have LPG under the sole boards of the boat and then the whole lot goes up when something down there starts up. Most bilge pumps are again emission protected, but uh, yeah, we couldn't quite believe that. Whatever his name was. Uh, <laughs> looking through the windows he's trying to find um, his own death with a lighter so stoves have come a long way um, electric is the other thing which is available now now that's obviously going to depend on your power plant generators batteries all that kind of stuff the good news is that more power is coming more power baby it is coming and we are going to be in a situation as we go further into the 21st century where the uh, power required to cook food does not have to come necessarily from hydrocarbons like coal and wood. It doesn't have to come from slaughtering uh, sentient uh, animals like killing whales to get uh, whale oil. It does not need to come from giant stored bottles of liquid petroleum gas. It's much more likely we're going to have things like hydrogen and hydrogen um, cells, uh, combustible batteries, which will be providing enough power that we can run induction stoves. Now that to me sounds like total woo-woo because one of the first books I ever read about uh, offshore voyaging was Cruising Under Sail 
by Eric Hiscock. If you don't have a copy of that, uh, you're going to have to just stop calling yourself a sailor until you've gone and got a copy of it. And then uh, you have to write copious amounts of uh, comments, notes, and, and tags in all of the columns. You have to get it wet six times and then carefully separate each page with tissue and give it its own. That Well, that's how it went for me anyway. <laughs> I don't know how anybody else is going to do it. But um, great book from Eric and Susan Hiscock, written in the... 40s is that right i think that's right um their boat uh, the wanderers were their boats and um they did a fantastic job of outlining what was available you know oil powered stoves wood powered stoves gas stoves were coming in then to to have read that and have that as my basis of of how this area of sailing works and then to be thinking about the fact that we will have such excesses of energy on board that we can cook with an electric apparatus seems to me ridiculous and yet the thing is that once this uh, revolution overtakes us, you will be... Now, I know that we're talking about cooking. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten. But there is a revolution overtaking us at the moment, which is being driven by government regulation, by the fact that in a lot of territories in the last week, and this is going out at the end of April in 2021, um, in the last week, uh, Europe particularly, certainly the UK that I've been listening to the radio, they have accelerated their reduction of hydrocarbons. They've accelerated the program by 15 years. And they are looking at areas like the marine industry, like even us on boats doing what we're doing, that, that big, noisy diesel engine clunking away down there, uh, ruining, <laughs> ruining so many quiet afternoons of, you know, drifting around on the ocean with its noise and all the heat and all the rest of it smells. That thing is going to go away in that format and there's just nothing we can do about it and we should welcome it because we've all had issues with electric. If we can go to something where there's such an excess of power that there's power left over to cook up food in a clean, safe manner, then we should welcome that. And uh, certainly all the stuff I'm looking at with the new sponsor we have, which is a hydrogen, hydrogen power uh, company, um, whilst it's not here yet, what's coming around the bend is going to be very exciting for driving the boat, for driving the electrical systems on board, and that will spill over into cooking. So the history of stoves has gone from the very, very basics of you know carrying some uh, fire in the boat and then keeping that going as you go along, and then all the way through to now that we might be able to cook silently, cleanly, and without worries of explosions very, very soon. So food and being on a boat. Now, the history of, uh, of food on boats, the, the easiest thing going out into like a canoe or an open boat expedition is to be able to dry food as you go. And, and there's lots of um, uh, information out there on how to dry meat and how to dry fish. And that can be a real useful commodity. Certainly in a survival situation, if you do have to, you know, if you're catching fish and then you're having to dry the fish to keep it, you need to know how to do that. You need to know how to do it properly because if you get into a tight situation, you can't just be, oh, I'll put it in the fridge. Well, the fridge might not be running or we're just going to hang it up. Sure, that's how you dry things. No, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You're just going to make it moldy. Like So drying things out that you bring with you is uh, is an absolute basic. And there's an element here which we can, we're talking about history and a lot of what we've said so far doesn't really equate to putting it into practice. But there is one thing, which is that if you take vegetables that are fresh from the ground out onto the sea, they will last for a long time. Now I've done, if I think about something specific, so I'm not uh, being too generalized here, I think I'm doing the, the ARC, the Atlantic Rally for Cruises in 2018, um, the food was all bought before we arrived at the uh, at the at the Grand Canaria, and um, we had to leave very very quickly. There was a whole thing going on where we'd been delayed, and we had to turn around and go very quickly. I think I crossed the Atlantic from Connecticut to Las Palmas in 
or I feel like it was like 14 days when we were hoping it should have been 10. We arrived late, it was a bit of a mess. I had 11 hours ashore and then I turned around and turned and burned for Grenada. So, was it Grenada? No, St. Lucia, that's it, is the arc. Yes, Grenada is the rock transat. So, 11 hours ashore, two transatlantics, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. So, um, the food had all been bought, which was great. Um, it all come from a supermarket, okay. It all looked super fresh, it was wonderful. It, we put it all onto the boat and then we set off. Now temperatures below decks were probably 30 Celsius plus, so maybe over 84, 85 Fahrenheit. It's the only conversion I know how to do between centigrade and Fahrenheit, just in my head. 82 Fahrenheit is 28 centigrade. That's the only one I know, but it, <laughs> and I guess zero, zero Celsius is, uh, is 32 Fahrenheit, isn't it? But it was about around there, around 82. And uh, hot, as you might imagine, a lot of the vegetables were in little plastic bags, but they just started rotting within three days of leaving. Rotting, 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 rotting. And the issue was, of course, if you don't know this, supermarkets can hold uh, produce, fresh produce for ages, ages and ages. My dad, for a short period, worked for Fife's, which is a, uh, a fruit I think they, they store fruit, but primarily what they're known is for like delivering fruit to the, to the supermarkets. And uh, he was telling me then, I think it's like potatoes can be kept for 10 months. Um, it's a cool, dark area. The potatoes are in there. Apples can be kept for like many, many months. Uh, same, I think they're like 10 months as well. Um, everything has an upper limit that it can be stored for before it goes to the supermarket. And depending on how busy they are for a particular thing or if something's out of season, you can end up buying things from the supermarket, which actually the sugars have changed considerably inside it as it's weighted. Yeah, it's cool and it doesn't rot, but it does not now have the ability to stand up to heat and uh, a bit of sweating inside a plastic bag as the original vegetable or fruit would have done when it straight came out the ground. So if you're gonna load up your boat for a transatlantic or some other kind of long voyage, if it's gonna be warm, Try, try, try to get stuff from organic uh, producers where it's come out of the ground very, very recently. Cabbages, um, carrots, apples, potatoes, they will all last so much longer. You will really appreciate how much longer they last. They taste better, of course, um, and then you're, you're, you're doing what people did at the very beginning of all this. You're trying to load up your craft to do a long vo uh, voyage and you need stuff to be, <clears throat> pardon me, you need to be stuff to be as, as hardy as possible. So. Um, the history of food on boats gives us our first useful bit of information for the modern day as well. Get fresh vegetables that have just come out the ground and they'll last a lot longer. Um, the complexity of going to sea though on longer voyages, of course, uh, created a lot of issues to begin with. We've come a long way in all this. We've, we've uh, been talking about how long we've been at sea. We have come a long way. We have learned a lot as we've been going along and um, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. One of them, of course, was scurvy. Now, I've uh, used scurvy so many times to get out of uh, meetings and um, and uh, when I was a kid at school, you know, if you're a sailor, um, try and get it out there, try and use it, you know, you're feeling a bit crappy, you don't want to go into work, just call your boss and say, look, you know, you know I'm a sailor, well, I've got scurvy, it's the only thing we've got so that we can have a duvet day and stay home, but no, seriously, um, scurvy, of course, was a great issue to begin with, they didn't know what was going on, with the loss of this super important uh, vitamin in the body, the vitamin couldn't... Uh, was not available to undergo the, the processes it needed to go undergo in the body and it meant that things started to break down. Bleeding from the gums, gingivitis, um, getting very, very ill, getting very, very weak. We, we all know that um, scurvy is uh, something which uh, was overcome when they started to realize the British Navy was actually the one that um, started 
really targeting this and trying to do something about it and they did it of course by sending the ships out with limes on board actually limes and lemons it wasn't really limes if you uh, if you look at um uh, lemons which they were quite easy to get and are bigger and tougher in many ways than limes uh, but in French is limon so limon lime it all starts to mix together so whether it was limes or lemons um, British sailors got known as limeys of course uh, but what it was is that it was like a medicine that was being brought on board they had no idea how to stop this disease otherwise this thing that was uh, killing off their sailors so uh, the the limeys, the sailors started to go, but there are other sources of vitamin C on the boat and never underestimate um, what's possible from uh, very dark green vegetables. You've got to be got to be a little bit careful with veggies on a boat. You know, you want to get the max amount of them. You're not just putting this stuff in your face so that you can just feel full and get on with something. You've got to get the nutrition in. You're in a very difficult environment and um, you've got to just be very cautious that you're getting from the stuff you're cooking everything that's available within it so we don't want to be boiling the arse out of vegetables so that everything is lost to the atmosphere we want to be and then you know pour off the broth as well you want to be making sure they just get a little bit of a uh, little bit of heat they soften them off a little bit and then you're going to get maximum benefit from them but vitamin c and scurvy was a, an early issue but it wasn't the only one um, some of the other things that happened was that uh, lead in early uh, tin cans was an issue as well. When they sealed up tin cans to begin with, obviously you've got your your the, the metal of the can, which is more like a you know a steel and iron, um, and then it's lined on the inside with tin, which gave you the sanitary uh, uh, interior face that wouldn't then rust up against whatever was uh, wet inside it. Uh, but then the cans were sealed with lead, and this was an issue. And if you uh, we could maybe do a talk one time. I'd love to do that, actually. I'm going to literally write that in my book right now. We're going to do something about the Northwest Passage. I don't know if you know the story of the Northwest Passage, but I could talk your arm off about that. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty much what this podcast is about, isn't it? So uh, the Northwest Passage is very, very important. And if you know a little bit about it, then you'll know that um, one of the main characters in that is Franklin. Um, Franklin's expedition succumbed to the ice. The Erebus and the Terror were destroyed as they entered the McClintock and Victoria Channels, crushed in ice. They managed to walk across the ice to some kind of land. Um, but unfortunately, all of them died um, from the cold and from the fact that uh, they had been eating each other. They had to resort, unfortunately, to cannibalism, which we can tell more about that in the in the story. But they had lead poisoning and they had lead poisoning from the food which had been in the cans and the cans had been sealed with lead. So, again, unfortunately, in an environment on a boat where there wasn't anything else, you just literally have what you've been given to eat and um, it all went horribly wrong for them. So... Um, lead getting into things was a, a terrible issue what else were they eating on board the boat we have like hard tack bread which would be a very very dense um very solid kind of uh bread like <laughs> monstrosity if you ever had hard tack they used to say with hard tack you eat it in the dark and they used to always put a couple of raisins a couple of bits of dried fruit in it um, because uh, the weevils would get into the tack bread and um what the eye can't see the heart can't mourn for you wouldn't know if the little soft squishy thing you were biting into was a, a, a lucky bit of apricot or a lucky bit of orange or if it was in fact uh, a weevil so um, hard tack bread would often be softened off in uh, in water before it would be served and then things like salt beef salt pork um, and even salt fish very easy for them to uh, come by the salt as you can imagine and you can dry things out very uh, easily to uh, any kind of sea water can be dried out in a pan uh in in a, in a big pan you kind of make in a little uh well, okay 
they do this a lot in Hong Kong. I actually used to live opposite an island, or used to do historically, called Yim Jim Chai, Salt Island. And um, they would have these big concrete pans, which were all sorts of different heights on the island, but like terraces almost in a, in a you might think of in, in Nepal or Bhutan or, or China or wherever. And they would have these concrete pans, seawater be pumped up into them, so it's only like two inches deep. And then the heat of the sun would dry off all the water and what would be left was salt. So salt was super easy to come by and it's a fantastic preservative. Sugar is also a preservative, but much harder to come by. And poor bad luck for the for the sailors. It, they weren't getting things that were um, preserved in sugar. They were getting them preserved in salt. So you'd have these big lumps of, uh, of meat. And often what they'd do is they'd hook a grapnel into them and then tow them off the back of the ship and uh, just to try and get the salt off the surface of the beef and then uh, off the beef or off the pork and then pair away the outside a little bit and get down to what was inside which is still very well preserved because the salt itself is um, it, it absorbed moisture it's hydroscopic and it just takes all moisture out and it's almost so so acidic that um, nothing can grow in there but trying to eat it with um, <laughs> trying to eat it with any other salt left on it is uh, completely disgusting so um, what else were they doing? They had uh, uh, pemmican. Pemmican is something which is an, actually an expedition food which developed, as far as I know, it was developed by or with Ernest Shackleton for his expedition south. It was a, a mainstay. It was a canned product and it had all sorts of um, corn-based and meat-based stuff in it. But if you ever get a can of pemmican in your hand, it's basically dog food. It's give or take what it is. That's what it seems to us. I did the training for the um, Shackleton Epic Expedition, which was in 2012, where they um, recreated Shackleton's escape from uh, from Antarctica. I was the training skipper for that. Unfortunately, my dad was ill with cancer, and I uh, made a, a very solid, and I'm very happy I made the decision to stay with him for his last couple of months and, and nurse him rather than doing the expedition. But because of that choice, um, they, I, I did not, uh, I didn't do it. Nick Bubb did the expedition, but uh, on that we got to see what some of the original stores would have looked like and. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty much like dog food, but uh, it'll get you through. <laughs> it'll get you through. So, uh, luckily, we've got past most of that now, and we're getting into pretty uh, standard things to take onto a boat. And I guess here we're just starting to move into uh, what is the uh, the the food. What are we doing with food? I'm just going to write one thing on my piece of paper here before I set off in the <laughs> into like the food thing. I'm going to write cooking safety, and we're going to come back to that before we finish up here. So. The food. So we've now got round from all the machinery that we use and a bit of history down to how does food go on the boat? And I can relax now because I don't have to look at my notes because this bit I know. Now, <clears throat> let me see. What have I what have I learned over time? What I've learned over time is that humans run on three things. They run on oxygen, water, and sugar. And you have to be very careful as the skipper or as the person that's doing the victualing, who's the person that's getting the victuals, is getting the supplies to put onto the boat. That's the proper word for uh, putting food onto a boat and getting it ready for an expedition is you are victualing the boat. Um, you are going out to buy the victuals. Um, you can maybe go into a supermarket and put on a super English accent and say, could you direct me to the victuals, please? Um, but once you've got your, your victuals on board the boat, your task is to then uh, modulate and monitor the intake of water and sugar and other things of course but those two things primarily for your sailors and I and I put it like that clearly nutrition and we're going to get into that in just a second but at a most basic level uh, sugar can 
change the way a crew reacts to hard times. It can change the way that interpersonal relationships happen. It can change people's uh, approach to a problem. It can change how people deal with, um, you know, disaster. Oh, we're not going to get there for another day because of the storm. That can be a major emotional wrangling or it can be a, yeah, okay, no problem with the introduction of the right meal at the right time. Food is a tool as much as uh, the, the chart on the table or waterproofs or the toolbox. It is something which is helping you to manage and monitor the crew, which of course is one of the most important components of the vessel. When and how you do your food and what you've got on board can create a fantastic situation or it can be a flipping disaster. So what do the disasters look like? Uh, I've done plenty of those. <laughs> and it tends to be lots of middle-aged men racing on boats. What middle-aged man? A middle-aged man is so responsible for so, so many issues in so many parts of the world, but particularly on boats. Middle-aged man, he knows. He knows. You don't have to tell him. He knows. So you don't have to explain to him like, when are we going to eat? What's the schedule? What are we going to be eating? What have we purchased? Don't worry. Middle-aged man has got it sorted out. And what he will tend to do is think about the food at the last minute and then quite often palm it off onto uh, a loved one, a partner who's going to go out and, and go and get all this stuff. Now, the kind of food that comes onto a boat, um, there's some rules, there's some things that make it easier and, and harder, but uh, you're going to have to have stuff that's probably got a high caloric intake. You're going to have to have things which are relatively easy to produce, and you're going to have to have things which have minimum tidy up afterwards. Um, and I would say like, and are easy to eat yourself. It's pretty tricky doing like tacos on a boat unless you're going to make them all up and just pass them out. They're going to be all over the floor, wet hands. Won't. So doing tacos and stuff, not much easier, but doing wraps, Oh, that's super easy, right? Just wrap everything up in a tortilla wrap. Very easy to hold. One hand for the ship, one hand for your meal. It's all looking good. But when it gets palmed off to other people and it's just like, is the food on board? Yes, it is. Uh, and then you set off. In inevitably, you're going to end up doing like the first afternoon of the race with like almost nothing and you're boiling hot and no one's drinking properly and no one's getting sugar. Everyone's getting super ratty as it's going into about six o'clock in the evening and they realize that, oh man, this is going to go on all night. So someone says, well, shall I get some food? Like, oh, yes, we can. There we go. No problem at all. So then they go down and start the process of cooking, which if you've got eight or 10 on a 40 footer doing a race, suddenly somebody who has no experience of doing this is taking food that may or may not have been accurately picked to be on a boat in this situation. You might be going upwind. You might be going downwind. It might be hot. It might be cold. It might be whatever it is. Suddenly these supplies are going to have to be turned into sustenance for your crew. And that process of it going from vittles stored on the vessel to uh, something going in someone's mouth can often end up disastrous. So how does it go wrong? It goes wrong when people don't realize how important this thing is. And there's lots of like, well, I'll do and you know, just grab a handful of this and don't worry, it's still slightly frozen in the center or whatever the hell the situation is. You end up with some super crappy uh, answer to uh, your sustenance for that, uh, that evening, which you eat on deck maybe under a red light or someone's freaking out about you about lights on deck. You eat in darkness, you eat in silence. And then the next thing you get to eat is a, like maybe a, some peanuts or a Mars bar at two in the morning. And then next time is uh, when the sun comes up and someone goes like, we need food. So the food thing, um, initially it seems like a bit of a joke. Like, well, you know, get something to eat, like survive. Yeah, if you're going to go out onto the water and like exist, that's fine. That'll work perfectly. If you're going to go out there and excel and live there and be part of it, like be the archetypal mariner in this, you've got to, you've got to do it right. You've got to do it properly. So 
the first gig is um, let's start with uh, water and sugar just on the side deck you've done your star it's 10 o'clock in the morning and now we're getting to the afternoon it's super hot people need to be making sure that they've got got hats on they've got sun cream on and they're getting loads of fluids in if you can't get fluids into your body properly you are going to start to become a substandard suboptimal component of the boat um, it's just as bad as having a corroded fitting or having missing equipment or a tear in a sail or something. The components, which are the crew, are now not functioning the way that they should. So as a skipper or as a watch leader or something, you have to look at your tools, your crew, and say, how do I keep these, you know, keep them in their best uh, possible condition? Food is your friend in this one. Getting fluids into people um, is so important. If you end up that you don't put enough fluids into people, then you can end up that their judgment starts to go all over the place, that their ability to keep themselves and others around them starts to go all over the place. They're slow to react to emergencies, that they um, become very irritable, that their uh, ability to communicate goes out the window. All of the classic uh, signs of dehydration, the interactive signs of dehydration start to go. People might not make any sense when they're talking. Their eyes are sort of all glazed over. They can they can look very hot and flushed, or they can actually be dry skinned and and uh, and almost whitely pale if they're getting really bad. There's a 50-50 on the sweating thing. It may or may not happen. 50-50 on the flushed face that may or may not happen. You've got to look a little bit beyond that and say, like, is this person functioning the way that I'd be expecting them to be? Do they seem emotional? Do they seem overwrought? Do they seem that they don't think it's dangerous when it clearly is? Like something's not off. It may be that the issue is that they're getting dehydrated. You start off obviously with heat stress where you're in a situation where you are um, overly hot, overly dehydrated. You quickly pass on to heat exhaustion, which is where you're then getting that you really need some fluids. You're probably 10% dehydrated or more. It'd be clearly easy to understand uh, where somebody's at in terms of their hydration if you could examine their urine, but we need to do that for ourselves. So you need to let people off the rail and they need to look at their peers. It's going out the back of the boat or going into the toilet and they need to be able to make an internal judgment about where the hydration's at because if the hydration's not there, then that means their ability to engage in the functions they've got on board the boat is not there. So you've got to get a little bit pragmatic and mechanical about how your body works so you can be the best possible version of yourself on board the boat. Your pee should look like um, the color of straw. It should be light color. It shouldn't be golden brown. It shouldn't be like toffee stripping into the toilet. It should be light brown. And it's a good argument there for why you go into a situation uh, at least once a watch and you're looking at your, your pee going into the toilet and judging it against the white ceramic of the bowl or the bucket, depends. But uh, not just always over the back and not looking. You cannot monitor that key element of what's going on if you're not looking at your pee. So if you're starting to get dehydrated, uh, that's not dealt with. You're in heat exhaustion. What happens next? You'll go into heat stroke. And heat stroke obviously is a lot more serious. Heat stroke is a situation where someone's brain is starting to shut down because there's not enough fluids. Um, people go like, oh, Benny had heat stroke this afternoon. Well, Benny probably didn't have heat stroke this afternoon. He's probably extremely over hot and was probably had heat exhaustion. Heat stroke is a life-threatening condition and we need to rapidly cool the person down and get their body temperature back within a normal range and we need to get fluids into them as fast as we can. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about um, extreme uh, water situations that I've been in at towards the end of that. I'll make a note of that here. Um, I'll write the uh, 
no water underlined and then we'll see if I can remember to come back to that later so water is super important you do have to watch going the other way if you get people who are super over the top worried about it they've got a big wide brimmed hat they've got coverings that cover their in you know, right down to the um, wrists right down to their feet uh, they've got the mask that comes up over their face although I guess that's pretty ubiquitous now with COVID but this person turns up and they're like completely covered in clothing which is super smart and they've got that water bottle and you see them chugging all the time they can end up what's called hyponeutremic which is where they've watered their blood down a lot of um, cultures have a undertow of like received knowledge that you shouldn't drink too much water i know certainly when i lived in hong kong and worked in china and the philippines drinking too much water was a thing that we kind of had to get over um, how much water should you be drinking per day about two liters about half a gallon that's about the amount you need in everyday stuff some of that will come in through your food um, but you know you, you need to be taking that much you're made of water you've got to replace it you can sweat about 250 mils and exposed skin uh, an hour uh, when you're out in in hot sun another reason why if you're in the desert you've got to keep your clothing on you've got to stay covered up you've got to stop that water um, sweating off your skin but 250 uh, an hour if you've not been drinking very much within four hours of the sun which remember you know by 10 it's hot by two the worst part of the day and if you're uh, exposed on the deck of a boat the sun's reflecting off the water the sun's reflecting off the sails and the white deck uh, you're getting heated from all angles if you're wandering around like it's um baywatch or something uh, you're getting cooked baked whatever you're uh, probably shedding 250 or more mils of water off your skin every hour you can end up super dehydrated the response to that of then drinking loads and loads and loads of water can end up with basically the same problem. Your hyponutremic, your judgment's going to go. You're going to end up dizzy. You're going to end up with kind of babbling conversation. You're just doing a different kind of disservice to your brain. First, you're not giving it enough water and you're dehydrated. And now you're not giving it enough nutrients. And now you're hyponutremic. So you've got to pick the right level. And the way that you can tell is again by looking at period p if it's gone completely clear then you are now you've got too much too much fluids going on um and uh, the 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 solution if somebody is um exhibiting these kind of uh, symptoms you've got somebody who's just not acting the way they normally would the first question is when did you last pee and if it's like in the last 15 minutes they may be hyponutremic and if it was hours ago they're probably dehydrated so water is your big friend and I always do is that if we're going to go into a situation like imagine you know you've been on the side decks for hours and hours and hours we're going into an evolution uh, we're going to be I know dousing a kite or something's going to require some coordination um, what I'll say to the crew is okay guys you know five minutes to the evolution let's get some water on the go we get the bottle going up and down the rail or everyone gets out their water bottle and we get some sugar and get a little snack going on and then we know that in about five minutes time the, the gig is going to start about five minutes later we're going to be in the middle of what's going on then if it goes well five minutes later it's finished if it doesn't go well 15 minutes later we're still doing it but now we know we've got those sugars and those fluids moving around which means people are going to be sharper they're going to be faster they're going to communicate better and they're going to do a better job of being the crew so water is super super important as we can imagine sugars equally we're not just uh, going to be talking about sugars here but if it gets into a situation where people are getting really crabby, people are getting irritable, people have, you know, someone's been on the wheel for far too long and they're really irritable, get a little snack into them. Get a little 
sugar, get a little uh, um, chocolate, a little peanut, something like that. Whatever it is, whatever's the, 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 the thing that people will go for, just try and persuade them into it. It's one of the reasons I've become really well known for having gummies on the boat all the time. The reason I kind of got into having those, I do have a bit of a kind of moral dilemma by the fact they're made from gelatin. And although I don't have an issue eating meat at all, I'm trying to get a little bit moral about you know where my meat comes from and uh, the way that gelatin is uh, created, not so good. It's lips and assholes and, and it, it any great, in a great situation, but super tasty, super tasty. And Haribo, which is my favorite brand of gummies, um, there's so much sugar packed into them that it's basically like a very condensed isotonic uh, drink going down your going down your neck. So uh, that's one of the reasons I love them because you just pump a couple of those into your mouth and then boom, you know, four or five minutes later, you're going to have some instant energy that's going to last for, you know, the next 20 minutes before you crash. So um, I use sugar and water as a tool to keep my crew uh, on it and keep them interacting with each other positively. Let's Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, interactions. So we have to go and sail this boat. That's that's our gig. That's what we decided. Maybe we don't have to do it, but by the time we got down to the dock and everything's packed and we're leaving, like we, we basically have to do it, right? So we've got two options. We could do it in such a way that it's completely miserable, or we can do it in a way where we have a great time. We can do it in a way where it's pretty safe, or we can do it where it's super unsafe. Like you see how this goes? You've always got this like big um, binary decision to make. You make choices about how you run the boat, which lead to good outcomes and others lead to bad outcomes. And my um, experience is that once the race has been decided, once the boat is back at the dock, once the blown out spinnaker has been taken off and sent to the sailmaker, once the big ding on the side from where you, once all that stuff is done and the details are forgotten about, there's gonna you're going to be left with this overall kind of like feeling about how it went and if the food thing and the water thing has not been dealt with properly that overall feeling will be i don't like that and that amigos is how sailing stays small because you can end up people leaving the boat are just like that is rubbish now how can you cure that it has been my observation that making sure as the skipper that hey everybody on the side rail you had a drink you know nicely asked it's you're not actually like leading a poor house in the 1800s um you had a drink awesome yeah send up a little snack there brilliant and that that is going on and you're monitoring people their interactions become so much more positive that their um temperament is a lot more kind of median and unable to handle the, the highs and lows of what's going on that they feel that you are more professional. You may be a professional skipper or you may be somebody that's aspiring to give the same service as a skipper as a professional skipper would do. Remember, that's it. You're the captain. You are in service of those people on that boat. You're there to be responsible for their safety and to bring them together in such a manner that they have a positive physical outcome, undamaged, and a positive emotional outcome, undamaged. And the way that you manage the food is super important. If you have, yeah, like, got your wife like to be stereotypical about it. hey wifey could you just uh, make a load of food for me and the chaps this weekend and she's frozen a load of stuff but now the stove doesn't work so that's slowly like thawing out and you can have spoons of it at two in the morning and no one's got snacks because bob forgot the bag in the back of his car and the water is like well we didn't bring much water because we want to be light on the trip and like that's all horse crap to be absolutely honest like you're doing a bad job as skipper 
you got to get the food thing sorted out and people will come back and they will love it and you will get better performance out of your people. The, the, one of the things I used to do when I was a kayak instructor is that as we're approaching the shore after a long kayaking expedition, before we get into the surf, before we get onto the beach, is I would stop the group, which would be about six double kayaks, and I'd get everybody to pull back their spray skirts, get their legs out of the, the, the cockpit and kind of hang them over and move them, massage their thighs a little bit, have a drink of water, chat to each other, have some sugar, talk about the landfall that we're about to do. And then after you know, a good five or six minutes, everyone's pins and needles have gone and they would put their legs back inside the boat and then we would head on into the beach. And my incident of people falling over whilst getting out of the kayak and injuring themselves or hurting themselves or just distressing themselves in the surf, tripping over, falling over as they got out of the kayak, my instant of that dropped through the floor. And it dropped through the floor because they had a little bit of sugar in them, they had a little bit of water in them, they're able to see the job ahead of them, like, okay, we're going to take these boats and we're going to put them onto this beach. But also because I was smart enough to realize if they got their legs out of the cockpit, they actually got blood flowing in their legs and they were then able to use their legs properly to stand up and get cleanly out of the boat and make the transition from sitting down in a 17 foot long plastic thing in surf to being upright alongside the kayak, lifting it out of the water. I learned that the hard way from people falling over. The same thing happens if people are going to go and do evolutions, you're going to have somebody out on a bowsprit or you're going to have somebody out on the end of a spinnaker pole if it's a bigger boat you're going to have people pulling down kites easing halyards communicating with each other it is super smart to make sure that those units those parts of the boat those components are in the best possible condition they can be so that you can get the best work from them and the safest work from them and that they are enjoying what they're doing they're engaged in it they're learning and they are getting from it what they wanted to get out from it from going onto the water so um, monitoring sugar and monitoring water as a professional or near professional skipper is super important. I will add a little note here about the oxygen part of my original statement that sailors run on sugar, water and oxygen. The oxygen comes in, the oxygen comes in because people, um, if they're starting to get tense and nervous and if they're going to get seasick, they start breathing really shallowly. We're not doing a discussion here about seasickness, but we'll, you know it's kind of part of it. It's the big trifecta of keeping your crew on uh, at safe at the most basic level. Sugar, water, oxygen. When they get stressed, when they start to get nervous, when they start to get sick, people kind of grit their teeth and they start doing that like slow, smiley kind of like looking out at things like, is this going to be okay? Now, if I gave you a drinking straw to breathe through for half an hour, by the end of half an hour, you're going to feel pretty crappy about yourself. You're going to have a high CO, uh, CO2 level inside your body and you're going to have um, probably not enough oxygen and you're going to feel very anxious and, and stressed. That's one of the places where seasickness starts. People start to get nervous, they tense up and they start breathing really shallowly. Getting them to breathe properly is a fantastic way of moving them back into normal CO2 levels and normal um, oxygen levels and they can, they can get the best from them. So again... If people are going to go, they've been sitting on the rail for a long time or if they've just got up on deck, say to them, hey, just take a couple of deep breaths. Just, you know, get at your best. If you don't realize that people, that the boat is a machine and the people on the boat are also machines, you're missing a very important thing. And if you're not tending to these basics of your machines, your your, your crew machines, then you're always going to be at risk of uh, unnecessary um, unhappiness and accidents and and slowness if you're if you're racing so 
Um, sugar and water, super, super important. Um, sugar, obviously, is not the only thing that we need to worry about. There has to be a certain percentage of the victuals that have been brought onto the boat, which are snacks available for anybody and everybody. Now, I personally have been on a bit of a mission in the last two weeks um, to reduce my sugar intake. <laughs> and anybody that knows me is now laughing their asses off uh, as they as they as they roll their eyes to uh, CSM is trying to reduce the sugar intake. I eat a huge amount of sugar. I weigh 190 pounds and there's about two pounds of fat on the front of me, my skid plate as I call it, my Z71 skid plate on the front of my tummy here. Um, but uh, I burn it off very, very quickly. But I'm 43 now, my metabolism's gonna change or is changing or whatever that is. And uh, obviously if I continue to go the way I'm going, I'm gonna put on weight, which I don't want because I need to be this shape, this size, this power to weight ratio for the things I wanna do. But also sugar is not great. Uh, <laughs> so I had a day a week ago where I baked myself some cookies in North America. I'm not sure if it's the same in Europe, but you can get like these plastic sausages it kind of look like a salami you get it out of the fridge at the supermarket and it's got cookie dough inside it and you just cut it open cut those things up into big fat slices you put them on your cookie sheet and 20 minutes later you've got these lovely warm crumbly cookies like the best and not a bad idea for a, a snack on a boat if you can uh, if you can grab those if you've got a way of cooking them great smells coming up very positive feeling great way of getting people positive but um not so great if you're me and you uh eat the whole lot and then <laughs> realize there's 150 grams of sugar in it. 150 grams of sugar. So I was feeling pretty crappy at the end of that. And then I thought about the fact that, well, uh, actually today I've also drunk a large Tim Hortons French vanilla latte, which has 70 grams of sugar in it. Can you believe that? 70 grams. So those super chocolatey, uh, no, that one's not chocolatey, super creamy, sugary kind of drinks that come from the fast food places. That one from uh, the Tim Hortons, which is such a big deal here in Canada, 77 zero grams of sugar. The equivalent of putting 26 sugars in your coffee. Like I've met people who are like, oh, put three sugars in there, four sugars in there. Like personally, I'm a, I'm a Do Dolly Parton kind of guy. I like it, you know, uh, white coffee with, with uh, two, two nice lumps in there. And um, I, I've never yet ever asked for a cup of something with uh, 26 sugars in it. So at the end of that day, I realized like, okay, I've eaten way too much sugar today. How much had I eaten? I totted it all up, I rechecked, I checked again, and I had eaten 303 grams of sugar. So what I did is, um, <laughs> I couldn't believe that. That's virtually the weight of a can of Coke. I think it's pretty close actually. The weight of a can of Coke of sugar I'd eaten in a day. So I realized, okay, this is getting ridiculous here. What's going on? Um, so I started to learn more about sugar and I uh, read via Audible a, uh, an audio book called Sugar Brain. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Maybe I can get that up on my phone now and just tell you who the, uh, who the author was. It was brilliant. It wasn't lecturing. It wasn't trying to like make me feel bad about things, but it did give me a reminder. Like I know sugar's bad. Of course we do. It, in North America, there is so much sugar in everything, it's just completely ridiculous. Obviously, I lived all over the world. Um, sugar is massive in North America and it's added into so many things in such a way that just doesn't happen in Europe. Um, oh, here it is, The Sugar Brain Fix, it's called by Dr. Mike Dow, D-O-W, The Sugar Brain Fix. Um, brilliant, brilliant thing. And obviously, the effects on your long-term health of eating loads and loads of sugar are not good, not good at all. 
diabetes is just one of the major things that you can completely mess yourself up with. Obviously, it makes a huge challenge out of keeping your body at the shape that you want it to be. Um, the other issue, though, is the uh, effects it has as you crash and then peak and crash and peak on sugar and your ability to engage in normal, rational interactions with people and to rationalize emotional situations are severely compromised by huge amounts of sugar. So my, my gig is to try and um, get crew interactions to be as smooth as possible on a boat. I do a lot of work on watch systems and how we run watch systems and sleeping and how people wake up. And we've talked now about water and how that's going on and awareness of breathing. This is not woo-woo stuff. Your engine in your car needs to breathe properly. It needs to have high quality fuel. It needs to be maintained. That machine needs that. We accept it. People need it as well. And when it's not done properly, it can end in bad situations. And if I start to realize that me as an individual, uh, that I could have seriously compromised my ability to rationalize emotional situations and, and have good judgment in the moment because of sugar, I have to change that. And I, I'm not so soft and wet that I can't like, you know, not eat sugar. I've actually, this is the change. I'm, I love soda. I'm now drinking um, Montelier. Uh, what's this? This is um, just soda water, basically, with a bit of lime in it. And now after a week of, um, of uh, staying away from sugar, these things, which I always used to just push away because, oh, I don't taste anything. That's not nice at all. It now tastes sweet. Lots of things, which to me never tasted sweet, now taste sweet because I've dropped my sugar intake down to, I'm only allowed 36 grams of sugar a day. Once you realize there's 12 grams of sugar in a glass of uh, milk and I've been having like a big bowl of shreddies or, or something that's got very low sugar, shredded wheat has no sugar in it. And then you put in the, the uh, 12 grams of uh, sugar onto it with your milk and then you realize, well, wow, there's only 24 grams the rest of the day and each teaspoon in my tea is three. It's like it changes the nature of it. You become a lot more aware of it. I didn't really want to ever end up one of those person that's checking those uh, and the instructions on the back of it, I think it was my dad would have said the destructions and everything on the back of the packets in the, in the supermarket. But hell's teeth. Like if I'm being poisoned by manufacturers who are chucking sugar in there, why would they possibly put 26 grams of uh, sugar? Oh, there's a fox going past my window. <laughs> there you go. Welcome to real life for a second. Right in the middle of this, there's a fox running past the window. Beautiful. Um, they. Why would they be putting all the sugar in this? It's because... Um, Sugar is, is the, 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 the sweet, sweet taste and the dopamine release that comes from having super sugary stuff makes you want that thing. There is no way that a big cup of coffee needs 26 sugars in it. I don't care what flavor you're like aiming towards. By the time you've got three, my, my uh, standard is always two in a cup of uh, tea. When my dad was getting super sick with brain cancer, he started asking for three, which was like, well, this is, things have changed here. It's been like this for 50 years. Um, but uh, I've, I've, you know, two sugars in a cup of tea, fine, no problem at two. Two sugars in a coffee, no problem at all. But when you're getting to the point where, you know, double a normal cup size, which is what these large takeaway things are, there's 26 sugars in there. To my mind, even if I make up a thermos of coffee or tea, it's only going to have four sugars in it. Even if you're at the motorway services or at a gas station and you're making their coffee and they give you those tiny little packets of sugar and you have to put four of them in because there's like three grains of sugar in one. I don't ever go above four. So why are they putting 26 sugars into it? Well, they're putting it in there, amigo, because uh, that chemical will give you a dopamine hit and you'll be like, oh man, I really love Tim Horton's French vanilla lattes. And then you're gonna be back for more. The extra 22 sugars, there to keep you coming back. That's free, they'll give you that. Although there's a cost to them, they'll give you that for free because 
that keeps you coming back. So I do not want to be in a situation where I'm unaware of the way I'm being preyed upon as a consumer. And if I need to start make decisions that um, help me as a living, breathing organism that needs to keep safe and keep good judgment and, and keep on a, on, a, on a tricky path doing this complicated thing at sea, I'm not so daft and I'm not so easily swayed that I'm going to be um, just continuing to go and have an extra 20 grams of sugar in every single thing I drink. So that's a little bit of a rant, a little bit of a lecture. It's kind of new for me. I guess I'm persuading myself more than anybody else. But, um, you know, <laughs> if, if, if that's as bad as we are now that we just, we just, okay, I'll just have 26 sugars in my coffee because you say it's right for me. If that's where we're at. Yeah, that's uh, rubber willpower there. So uh, sugar is something which you have to monitor on the boat. I'm going to do a better job of that. Obviously, you can get things which are energy dense, which can be snacks on board the boat, like peanuts. They're great, like dried fruit, different kinds of sugars rather than all of that um, uh, modified fructose, which our, we, our bodies cannot deal, deal with that. Do you know what the liver does with fructose after you've uh, imbibed it? You know where that ends up? It ends up coated around your liver remember if there's fat outside your bones i assure you your body put the fat on the inside of the bones first that is the sad truth of what's going on now we are being lured into a situation with our food which is to somebody else's profit just recognize what's going on if you're going into a super isolating environment like on a boat you've got to bring high quality food choices and water uh, opportunities onto that boat so that those little machines your crew keep uh, doing what you want them to do so you can get where you want to go in the best possible of spirits like I hear so many and unfortunately it's normally couples like coming into the anchorage and they're yelling and screaming at each other and the kids are like all over the place and it's like I'm pretty sure that a lot of this obviously there's a lot more going on there than I know about but I'm pretty sure that uh, water sugar and oxygen could could definitely help out so we got the basics out of the way. Uh, what about like the food? Now, obviously, if you're doing racing, you can get freeze-dried food. Let's talk about that a little bit. I'll, I'll start it off with a little bit of levity after my uh, little <laughs> sugar rant there. Um, the uh, Yeah, so I heard a story from Alan Nabauer, uh, a great friend of mine. I haven't seen Alan for ages. He emailed me the other day. And um, Round the World Sailor and uh, the number two at uh, Velux when I was doing the Felix around the world race, great guy. And uh, he was telling me a story that there's a round the world race was going on and one of the skippers got really, really sick. Uh, I think like halfway down the Atlantic. It was not very far along as I remember the story. It might have been double-handed. You know what? <laughs> Alan told me a story and I'm going to give you a version of it. <laughs> um, so there's these guys on this round the world boat. I think there was two of them. They were definitely Russian, I seem to remember. And they were getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And the medic was trying to work out why they were getting so sick. Because to be absolutely honest, unless you've got something pretty seriously going wrong with you, you're not going to bring a, a cold on board that's going to show itself 10 days in or a flu on board that's going to show itself 10 days in. That something was going on in their environment and the medic decided that they were being poisoned somehow. They're eating all this freeze-dried food. And during discussions, and I think maybe even like, you know, getting into the nitty-gritty, like what exactly are you eating? Um, they discovered that... Uh, these unfortunate guys were unable to read the uh, English instructions and warnings on the side of the silica gel, which was inside the packet of uh, freeze-dried food. And they were—they had thought that the silica gel packets were um, some kind of seasoning for the food that they were having. So unfortunately, they had poisoned themselves with silica gel. 
um, having had that four times a day uh, for the last 10 days. So uh, be careful. Be careful what you're, you're bringing in. <laughs> be, do not poison yourself on a boat at sea. That's going to be like the most miserable way of doing it. But the freeze-dried stuff has got its own law and life. I was uh, very uh, happily sponsored um, by a company called Fusion out of the UK uh, in 2012 when I went around the world. And um, the, the chap from there, I forget his name now, nicest guy. Um, I couldn't believe their company didn't go too much further, but they got caught between like kind of the dock and the ship where they had so many orders and they couldn't complete them with the machinery they had, but they couldn't raise the capital to, to push themselves to that next level. Such a loss because they really had it completely worked out. The great thing was them, they did standard food that, you know, oh, we've got um, uh, Thai green curry and we've got lasagna and we've got like a, a breakfast one and we've got meat pie and all these wonderful things that they had, all beautifully cooked. But also what you could do is you could just get them for like freeze-dry chicken fillets or you could freeze-dry sauce or freeze-dry rice or free you could freeze-dry basics and then add the basics together. And I did do a little bit of that and it started to get me to realize something very, very important. Whether we like it or not, since the moment, you know, we kind of came crying into the world, there had been a specialness around food time. You get up, you break the fast of the night with whatever you like to enjoy for your first meal of the day, or you wait it's a little bit later if you're on some kind of special plan and you, you get your first meal of the day, whatever that is. And then you've got some kind of lunch and there might be friends, you go somewhere special, someone brings it to your table. Food has a huge part. The celebratory meal of, you know, well done, you've got out of university and now you have $60,000 of debt. Welcome to the rut. Um, all that is celebrated with meals. Food is important. And those rules do not get suspended because we're on a little shard of fiberglass bobbing around the organ trying to win a tin cup. That needs to still be observed. And I have been at the end of the spectrum where you... Um, forget about all of that and you just go food is fuel i am not going to even think about this i'm just going to chuck it in my head and then I, the, the the machine will keep running well i can tell you the machine doesn't know about all that new kind of idea you've got and it still keeps working on whatever you've been doing day in day out three meals a day a thousand meals a year for however long you've been alive that is hard won stuff and the reality is that when you get to the bottom of it cooking on a boat at sea if you get it wrong with the food, you can ruin a good day. And if you get it right, you can save a bad one. And at that point, when you work out, we are not here like trying to cross the Atlantic with a, you know, a cargo of sheep in 1700 with Joseph Conrad. This is for fun. This is families going out. This is friends going out. This is, you know, we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to race, we're trying to win, trying to do whatever. But as I said, once you get to the end of it and you forget about that split kite and you forget about that, you know, dink and dent in the side of the boat and you forget about where you came in the race. If you didn't have a good time, you're probably not going back or your love of sailing is just taking another knock. It's another kind of like cut in the in the cloth there. You've got to make the food important. The food preparation is an area where somebody can excel in a way that they maybe can't do on the rest of the boat. I've got a great example for you, uh, and, I'll, and I, I couch this in terms, we had a brilliant sailor on board my clipper boat, who was a fantastic boon to the uh, crew in all ways. There was no way was she limited in what she could do on deck. She had everything nailed. But when we got into the Pacific, and we got into a storm which lasted two weeks, it was over 45 knots for two weeks, it was over 70 knots for three days. Donna Atkinson was a complete legend and cooked for 20 people 
in the kind of conditions you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. It is one of the most singularly spectacular performances I've ever seen at sea, and it was the cooking. Because sailing is meant to be something where you stretch yourself beyond, where you where you go to a new level. You step outside your comfort zone, you do something which seems impossible, you cross an ocean, you save the spinnaker from going into the water. The Ford Ekman does the quickest change in the world. Everyone's got the thing where they're trying to excel. And sometimes it comes down to doing that thing that nobody else can do, which is so important to everybody's spiritual uh, progression in that situation. We were in a storm so severe that like, when we were doing a watch change, which was um, like literally everybody was together because we only had three people double clipped on deck. It's 50 knots solid and gusting above. And the waves are, you know, they were calling like house, house, mansion, hillside, like they were getting bigger and bigger. There was a very serious situation. Other boats in the fleet were rolled. Uh, people were injured. People washed over the side, but luckily recovered. Like it was very serious. And we were holding ourselves together with very strict safety uh, knowledge brought down through the ages from my reading as the, cap as, the, as the captain. We were in a situation so serious that I was giving this meeting below decks because the crew had come to me and said, it's so bad out there that we don't want you on deck because if you get injured, you're the electrician, you're the engineer, you're the navigator, you're the comms guy, you're the, you can maneuver the boat, you know everything works. Like We need to secure you inside the boat so we don't want you on deck. I'm like, okay. Um, and I was giving them this uh, this chat and I said, okay, we all did all of the, uh, the pickup practices, the huge amounts of man overboard training that Clipper does, but we're now in a situation so serious that if anybody goes over the back of the boat, I am not coming back with you. Okay, that's how serious this was. A 70 foot, 40 ton boat at sea in a situation where we've got um, a tiny little storm uh, staysail at the front out on the outer stay. We've got the staysail on, we've got the trysail on, and we're doing like 14 to 16 knots staying in phase with the waves for weeks. So in this scenario, like really hot uh, air inside the boat, everyone's breathing out, they're all tucked up in their waterproofs, the water's running down the inside of the boat because of so much condensation from these 20 people pinned inside. The motion is just beyond what you can imagine if you haven't been in those situations. And through this, these 20 people got fed by somebody who was able to provide this outstanding service to the crew and to the situation and turn what could have been a disaster into an exciting, thrilling, challenging nautical experience. You know, it, it, it they, she kept so many people together during that time, whether they really realized it or not. She was cooking it with huge pots of like noodles. I can remember one time, did I see it happen or did I see the, I'm not sure if I watched it happen because I was below decks, but the, the massive pot of noodles came up off the stove, even though she was physically holding it down. Noodles enough for 20 people came off. The entire pan hit the deckhead, came down, smash all over the stove, all over the floor. And she just got herself back up. She got as much of it back in the can as was sanitary. The floor was sanitary and been kept sanitary. She put all extra things in there and kept it going and still served the meal. Like, you need to be aware of the fact that there may be people who can excel in that area. And I'm going to make another caveat now to a middle-aged man. Do not turn around and think that the woman in your life is going to do it. 
Like I'll tell you right now, I'm almost getting like super irritated even if getting into this. Let's just get this right. So you're the man about town, hey? You can you can steer for hours. You can plot a course through dangerous ground. You can handle a boat in the marina and organize a crew. And you can't cook to keep yourself alive. You don't have the skill set to get nutrients into your own body. You're a joke. I have sailed with so many men, and I put it squarely in that point, who do not know how to cook, who cannot look after themselves. They literally have to have somebody like feeding them. Otherwise, the results of what they do quickly de-escalate into they're moody. Everyone else is moody. They're not properly nutrition. There's no cleaning going on. It's not safe. They don't know how to complete this operation. If you can't cook, hang up your spurs. You're not don't go out offshore yeah just you're gonna have to go with some people to kind of like help you with that yeah they maybe come wipe your ass for you as well it gets me so bloody irritated that people just look at you like well i don't know i don't cook like oh, my wife cooks my, my mom cooks my sister cooks like whatever it is the scenario it's like jesus christ like can't you just you know get food and put it together and work it's a pretty basic bloody uh, thing to be able to do isn't it so uh, another example from the from the clipper the other end of the is that um, we used to have these plans for like how the food would go down each night. And what would happen is that if people didn't make it properly, they didn't make the meals, you just end up with brown food. That's what we used to call it. Like, oh, brown food. Like there's no particular like theme to what's going on here. There's no particular plan. And you'd be served up with like, oh, it's soggy pasta under brown stuff. Oh, it's soggy rice under brown stuff. Oh, it's soggy whatever under brown stuff. Like it's not good. That's that's the kind of meal that ruins a good day. That's the kind of mean that meal that does not save a bad day. So what I would do is about midday when the person who was in charge of the food for the day, if it was somebody, let's just put let's move away from being like men, but somebody who did not seem to understand how cooking worked um, was in the galley. I'd be like, do you understand what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're gonna follow the instructions. Yeah, yeah. Don't put anything in that's not in the instructions. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd keep kind of monitoring them from the nav station. And if I would see that, you know, they're kind of a little bit clueless, I'd go back, are you sure? Do you want any help? Do you want any anything? This is very important. You get, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you see, middle-aged man is a kind of beast that will not be told, right? They're, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They completely know everything. And then I invariably would end up getting the first bowl of whatever the food was because that was the gig. Like the skipper gets it first, which is all very nice and all hail our conquering leader. But actually what was going on was it was making an acid test for the people to literally drive fear into them so that they would do it properly. Because if they did it badly, it affected everything that's happening on the boat. If people turn their nose up at that meal, they don't get the nutrition for that day. If that's a crappy meal, everyone's sitting there like, Ugh, you know, it drops what's going on on board the boat. People that are happy, people that have got good nutrition, they sail faster. They sail safer. They sail and laugh with each other and have fun in what they're doing. What are we aiming for here? We are not doing this to just beat ourselves over the heads with you know, misery. We are doing it to enjoy it. So I would get the first bowl of food and if it was good, no problem. I went back to the nav station and I would shovel that down my neck and obviously make sure I don't spill it all over the nav station. Um, and then uh, if it was bad, ooh, that was not good. I would put the bowl back down <laughs> and then invariably, uh, one of the people that was leading the, uh, the vittling would be standing by, probably having recognized this was about to happen, and would hand me the ceremonial can of ambrosia creamed rice. 
normally open, normally with a dessert spoon standing up inside it. And then I would eat cold ambrosia rice because at least I know what's in there <laughs> and I know what's going on. And then you know everybody's having a bad evening. The little red flag would be run up in the nav station and everybody's gonna have a bad evening all because of the food. But you know what? After doing that for a couple of weeks, everyone got the everyone got the message <clears throat> it's not that you can't have fun with it it's not that you can't be you know uh inventive and creative once you have the skills of how to cook then you can do it we had a guy that worked on challenger now to give you an idea he's working on a volvo 60 which has not really been modified it has a single lpg stove a storm 10 i believe it's called it's just a single burner stove uh running off a big bottle um and a tiny sink about 18 inches by 18 inches He's only got a cooler, he's not got a fridge, and he's got 16 people on board the boat, and we're at sea for 16 days, crossing the Atlantic in hot conditions. It's called Jules Tui, a young fellow that came on board the boat, and uh, he, his father was a professional chef, chef, he's a professional chef, and the things he could do with normal food would blow your mind. Like, it was just unbelievable. To see somebody who's got the skill levels like beyond the average, what they can do with it, you're like, this is a very, very important component in what's going on on this boat right now. He was awesome guy. I think he actually got a tattoo on his leg with uh, the, um, the 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 vessel on there and the the 301, the number of the boat on it. I hope if he's listening, he's uh, he's doing well. But um, absolute legend. Uh, completely did the most amazing job of cooking at sea I'd ever seen with very simple things. But if you don't have that skill. Do not think that when you reach for the Lee and Perrins or you reach for the, oh, I'll put some Tabasco in this uh, spaghetti bolognese, that you're somehow helping. You're not. If you don't know about cooking, you won't realize that everything is crafted together to create a particular taste and particular flavor, which moves the meal along in a particular way. If you're having lamb tangine, yeah, it's brown, but it has nothing to do with chili con carne, which is another brown meal. And it's nothing to do with spaghetti bolognese, which is another bad meal. Spaghetti bolognese does not need peas in it. People in Italy were not putting peas in it. It's not that's not where it's at. We're trying to create particular things. Cooking rice, cooking uh, spaghetti is a skill that has to be learned. And the rice can be burnt, and it can be soggy, and the pasta can be stuck together or inedible. Like there's a zillion ways of messing this up. So, actually, Phil was um, saying when he sent me this thing about, hey, you know, why don't you do sears for cooking? Because he he knew, <laughs> he knew I'd have some rants to say about this one. He said uh, maybe he should, um, what was his, I've lost his email now. Maybe I can look for it as I'm going along here. But he said he was, um, he couldn't find some uh, very good um, books for, for recipes on a boat. I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think if you have a look around, there's a lot of people have done a lot of uh, good books, particularly for things like um, uh, camping, like single pot cooking, double pot cooking. Um, he obviously hadn't found those ones. The Keep It Simple, Stupid uh cookery book like all that stuff very very useful he says uh he's going to make his own book possible titles are sauerkraut and cowboy stew <laughs> or S seafood the name of the book is seafood that's kind of clever i like that um <laughs> or his last suggestion is haribo is not enough <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a good idea, Phil. You should write that anyway. Phil was very, very good at this because he had got a couple of the important bits worked out. So um, Phil is a middle-aged man, but he is a smart middle-aged man. He's a smart man, and he knows uh, that food is important, and he would come up with amazing things. You can serve an orange on deck, and like, here you go, is an orange. You go, oh, thanks, all right? Or you can 
split the orange and then peel a little bit of the uh, the outer and just coil it down the center. And presentationally, it looks way better because then people go like, oh, look, you put a little bit of uh, rind in the center. Look at you, Phil, like it's a little bit special. And there's a lightning of the mood. There's a lightning of the moment. And they're easy to get at and easy to ingest. Oh, any more of those oranges? Like a cheat round, right? Get, get the oranges out. The peanuts equally, you can just send up the pot or you can send up um, peanuts that have been crushed and put onto the curry that you've done. If it's like a Thai curry, that's how peanuts could get out on deck. You can have um, little crackers that come up on deck and it's like, there's the crackers and there's the cheese. Or you could spend another 15 minutes and put a little bit of butter on and a little bit of, and stick the cheese onto it. And then when people are trying to maneuver these things, it's a one hand bite that they can get into their mouths and it's very, very enjoyable. Instead of taking loads of pop and crap with you, you can have water, but then you can have a little bit of cordial. Cordial is not something that's very big in North America. You get those really nasty, like super concentrated um, chemical crap, basically, that you like put two drops in a glass of water and it tastes like the end of the world. Um, you can also get ones which are more like from the UK, like Robinson's, and they have very natural ingredients, highly concentrated. But once you put a little splash of Robertson's it'd be like two tablespoons into a cup or maybe one tablespoon into a cup it's not much anyway um and then you um <laughs> I'm just thinking once I I was pouring drinks for people on a boat I was on and I didn't recognize that the thing I had in my hand they're like oh use some of that and I didn't realize that it was it was a cordial and I served it in the glasses and no one realized until they started to drink it and then uh, wow man alive like all their lips and teeth like rolled into their heads as the the full effect of drinking neat cordial took uh, took its uh, possession of their minds but um yeah cordial like natural cordials like that or you can just squeeze a little bit of orange juice into water or something but having loads of sugar in sugary drinks on a boat at sea is not necessarily like the most clever clever idea so um making sure that the food that you are producing is cooked using intelligent methods of cooking that you know how that skill set works is very important and by the way guys gives you a lot better chance with the ladies when you can take equal share of what's going on. Now, if you wanna make it into a superpower, then you have to be able to cook without making a mess. I would say this, um, knives and chopping boards, chopping boards have to be kept separate for vegetables and meat, okay? You can subdivide them further than that if you're in a professional situation. Um, it's very good to go, if you ever do this, like always make sure you're investing in yourself. Make sure there's some money going into you. And a, a nice little thing to do, it takes like a day to go and do it, is a food safety course and just get that little certificate and just find out how quickly bacteria spreads. Find out how, you know, oh, you use the sponge from the sink to wipe up that thing on the floor and tomorrow it's got salmonella on it as we clean the dishes. Like learning that stuff and learning how things should be refrigerated or cooled and how things should be um, kept safe for the humans that are trying to eat this stuff is very, very important. But on the boat, you need to be very aware that um, you are gonna be uh, probably a little bit limited in the way you wash things, and you can um, be a lot smarter if you um, keep a separate chopping board for meat and veggies. But what I do is I tend to have a lot of the meat, which comes on, obviously not dealing with like huge sides of ham or something, we're dealing with like you know steaks or chicken or whatever. I tend to come up with scissors, and I'll tell you why. Ships move, boats move, I don't know if you've spotted this. You can carve all sorts of stuff with scissors and all you have to do is brace yourself and obviously you're holding the meat or whatever it is, you know, as you then snip, 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 snip along way the scissors. But then if everything starts to move, you can let go of the 
meat thing that's in your hand and grab hold of something you can hold the meat thing and the scissors together by not completely compressing down on the scissors and then everything stays where it is knives and ship rolls and all that kind of stuff is very bad news you can cut steak with scissors you can cut chicken with scissors you can cut bacon with scissors you can cut up all sorts of things with scissors you cut up a lot of vegetables with scissors clearly there's limitations to that but um, give it a go. It's, it's a way of getting through things. Scissors should never be underestimated. You're doing a cutaway at the mast of something or other. Don't cut it with a knife. Learn from somebody who's been around folks that have made mistakes of which rope they cut and how many ropes they cut in one movement of the knife. You get a pair of scissors, put it exactly on the rope that you were wanting to cut. You double confirm that's the rope you want to cut. I assure you that rope under pressure will cut easily with scissors. So just a little side note there, but um, you can... Get uh, the food prepared in such a way there's not a huge mess. is very, very good. You've got pots and pans everywhere. Um, once the food's being eaten up on deck, um, it's good to have things in bowls. If you pass stuff up the companionway, um, <coughs> pardon me, you pass things up the companionway and uh, it's, it's light, uh, like crackers or, or, or candies or, or something, oftentimes you'll like put it up in the air and then it all blows away. All the sandwiches blow into a million pieces all over the deck and that's that screwed up. If they're in a bowl and tucked down a little bit, then it's a lot easier. Remember that when you're removing anything from the galley up on the boat, it should be one hand for yourself and one hand for whatever it is that you, you're, you're holding on to. One hand for yourself, one hand for the ship as always, right? Don't get into like that and I'll just balance all this lot, which inevitably ends up with the um, the magicness of four cups of tea coming up. You see them at the companionway and then they all disappear because a person falls over and all the tea's gone. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crucial to be able to clean it up and then get it to the deck. Bowls are very good. Now, having a set time to eat is very important. I tend to run uh, three hour watches during the night and then we... Well, these days I've got to say we probably run three-hour watches in the day. But if you're using a Swedish system, you may then have two six-hour watches during the day. But your change over time is going to be at six in the morning or nine in the morning, depending on, on what you're doing, of course. Um, it's easier to eat and, and enjoy cereal and, uh, and the things that might likely come for breakfast on a hot day if you eat them early at around six. But people might not be really feeling that way. Um, you can have a load of people going off watch at six that then maybe have their breakfast and go to bed, but they might feel a bit stuffed. And you just got to like, you got to roll with it a little bit. You got everyone's got different um, styles to things. I tend to keep that stuff very slack to begin with and let people find their own natural equilibrium. And then later on, you can introduce like, okay, this is exactly where it's going to be. A lot of the time when I'm sailing with people, it's people who are not really like professional seafarers it's a new thing and so it's easy to just like blend them into what's going on otherwise people say i don't want to eat at six if there's no other meal times before lunch day that person's then not eaten until the middle of the day or the early afternoon which then you've failed in your task of looking after one of the components that's you know, helping you run the boat that one of your crew is not eaten because they don't normally eat at that time and there are no other options <coughs> pummy so um the, oh, I better have a little sip of my uh, fancy, fizzy, non-sugary water here. Oh, that's better. So, um, yeah, getting up on deck. Now, uh, night lights, red lights, nighttime, and food. Let's just talk about that. So the food comes on deck. It's got to be hot. It's got to be tasty. It's got to be well-made. It's got to come from non-sugary, non-rotted, all that stuff we've already been through. Um, people bring it on deck. If you can see your food, you get more from it. There's just no two ways about it. People like eat in the dark. 
I know that this is a little bit contentious uh, subject, the, the white light, night light thing. If you're sailing like in the Solon in the UK or if you're in um, Long Island, uh, in, in Long Island uh, Bay there or if, uh, Long Island Sound, sorry, um, or you know, just off the coast of Florida or wherever you're sailing and there's lots of vessels around and you've got to be very careful about what you can see and how you're seen and night lights and night vision and all that kind of stuff, then clearly you need to be a little bit cautious about white light on deck. If you've been in the military, you will be absolutely bombastic about the fact that you have to have red light at night. But again, we are not fighting a war, nor are we training to fight in a war. So we don't have to have like tactical red lights. The enemy is not going to like be picking up our signals late at night because we're eating our dinner with white head torches on. Now, people will say, uh, but the helmsman will lose their night vision. Well, close one eye. Yeah, we're going to be doing a thing about that a little bit later on. There's a fantastic video which the Mythbusters did, which was talking about the myth that pirates had one eye closed because they were uh, keeping night vision on one, one eye. Their little documentary about it is brilliant. And they made like an indoor assault course thing that they had to go through. They came out from the bright sun into what was like l very low level light. But it actually, if you adjusted to it, you could easily see what was going on. They came in from the blinding California sun and they just crashed their way through this obstacle course they didn't know what was going on the cameras the night vision cameras picking up they had clearly had no clue what was going on until they'd been in there for 10 or 15 minutes then they went out into the uh then they did a control where they were uh sitting in the like the waiting room area with their eyes closed then they went in they just walked straight through it because they could see it easily then they did a control where they went out and they had an eye patch over one eye then they went into the darkened area and they still walked straight through it and knew exactly what was going on because that one eye had kept night vision that is how ancestrally in the ancestry and the extended family of sailing our ancestors have worked out that problem our new idea is don't put your light on don't turn off that light if someone's going to look directly at you with a light on well they're clearly a fool get people to get more con uh, kind of conscientious about angling it down monochrome lights are very dangerous on boats at night unless you literally have to have to go for this solution or you can go for the solution because what you're doing is so such a crude action that it doesn't matter if you're um using monochrome or not shadows are changed the way that monochrome light um is is uh, uh moving the shadows around it's very easy to, like fall down the companionway or trip over things because the shadows are slightly different from monochrome light that's a recognized understood part of um they had a lot of monochrome lighting actually like blue lighting going on in super yachts and they very quickly stopped doing it because people fall down the stairs that the monochrome lights were indicating because the light was all off um they also um uh, creates a problem obviously a lot of our ropes are color coded like why why are you bothering to buy color coded ropes i hope you say a lot in the day because if it's at night and you've got a monochrome light on all of that advantage has just been lost you may as well get the all the same color rope and then have things you can read and then you just go from there right so monochrome light has its place it's definitely a feature being able to angle your torch down being very like covering torches is a lot better uh, calling out hey i'm putting my torch on and the helmsman close their eye all very very intelligent ways of dealing with the light now i'm going all the way around the house way to get back to meals if you can see your way clear to allowing your crew to put their head torches on, even like hoods up or something, and look at their food, it's a much better experience for everybody. People don't know what the hell they're eating when it's monochrome, man. And if they're doing it in the dark, they can't even see how to get it off the plate. You are reducing the effectiveness of the meal. So 
you'll have to make your own decisions on that. But done a lot of miles, I can tell you that whole white light thing, it's, uh, it's in your head. You don't need to worry about it that much. As long as you can still see the instruments, you can still see the compass. Like, what are you looking at? What unlit obstacles are you looking for in the middle of nowhere at night? Or is it more important that people enjoy and get full benefit from their meal and from that um, end up being a better crew member, safer, emotionally more stable? That's more important than that. So um, the good food, well-made food, safely made food. I'll give you an experience that we had on the boat. We uh, ended up that was chili con carne left on the stove. And I think I had twice already said that needs to be put away. It was like an open top pan. We had crossed the Atlantic. It was like 2017, crossed the Atlantic from the Canaries. And I think we were literally like uh, almost within sight of Grenada. We were going to Grenada with the uh, Rourke Transatlantic race and um, a squall hit. And we couldn't get the kite down fast enough. There was a wrap or a twist or whatever it was. The whole boat healed over. It's a Volvo 60. Here crashing and, cra and kind of all sorts of noises coming on from inside the boat. And um, well, we, we dealt with the situation on deck and there was just... It looked like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre down below. This chili con carne come off this uh, Arrigo alcohol stove. As it departed the restraining uh, bars that hold the stove on the stove, uh, hold the pan on the stove, it had just like started to flick and then it caught a bulkhead as it cro traveled across the boat. And I, I believe from those who were there, I think Rob Copley was on that one and um, I think Drew, were you on that one? And there was a few other good people on there. And um, they... Um, <laughs> the entirety of the cabin seemed to have chili con carne all over it. Um, it was completely avoidable. You could just put the stove, uh, sorry, not the stove, geez, I'm obsessed with saying that. You put the pan on the floor, you can have the lid secured on it. It was actually the um, another good reason to use um, pressure uh, vessel, pressure vessel pans to, to cook is that you can secure the tops down completely when you finish cooking. Put it on the, on the ground. Uh, a little note there, epoxy paint, if the inside of the boat is epoxy painted with epoxy paint like a race boat, it will take the heat of a, cooling kettle or a cooling pan maybe not full heat but it'll take it cellulose single pack paint won't obviously teak and holly uh soles won't but if you've like on our boats we've got uh, epoxy uh grip uh paint in uh, below the galley and uh you can put things on the floor you can put things in the sink it's like get them out the way so you can keep the decks clear and keep things tidy but on that occasion yeah they're just uh carnage below decks and uh Again, my crew, my resource that I am there to manage and maintain for their betterment, for the betterment of the race, for the betterment of the boat, for that gig of being the skipper, I failed because that pan came off, distributed that crap all over, and then four good crew who should have been uh, resting had to take an hour, an hour and a half to tidy it all up. Like that's that's a failure at management level. Obviously, everything that happens on the boat is the is the, uh, the skipper's responsibility. But sometimes they turn their eye from that, particularly if they don't know how to cook and they don't realize the importance of cooking. Um, now, what were those notes that I put in my little book here? Green veggies. I don't see important cooking safety. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> if you're cooking at the stove, you got to be very careful if it's gas that um, you know where the solenoid switch is, so that when you finish cooking, that the solenoid switch is activated, cutting off the gas supply. Um, on your boat, you may have a manual cock that you need to move. It may be that you go back to the, the gas tank and close that off or whatever's your system. Um, it should be serviced and up to date and a, and a proper um, uh, gas installation specialist looks at it, not you with your lighter like checking along the flipping gas pipes to make sure they're okay. Anything perished, anything corroded, anything doesn't look 100% <clears throat> A1, um, you've got to change that out and make sure that gas is uh, 
if it's uh, the the knob is in uh, any position that is other than you know the definitely off it needs to be lit or the cock needs to be closed or the gas bottle needs to be disconnected but it's an absolute rule that there's no way gas leaks anywhere else in the boat particularly in heavy conditions where you're not opening the hatch very much <coughs> you can end up with um you can end up with gas where it shouldn't be my goodness i gotta have a bit more maybe we should be um drinking coca-cola it seems to have better abilities to moisten the palate coca-cola there's an interesting one i went to a um uh seminar once about uh isoto the use of isotonic drinks in in uh sport and um the chap came up highly decorated uh academic warrior came up to the the podium and he said before we conduct any more of this i want you to know the best isotonic drink there is is a can of coke with the same volume of water taken directly afterwards is like everything else is a compromise on that. Now, <clears throat> there's lots of sugars, lots of salts and Coke. Uh, the World Health Organization, if it gets desperate in some war-torn areas, they will literally flatten Coke and then give that to people who are in very serious uh, malnutrition situations. So I, I tend to use Coke as a, a pick-me-up when things are starting to go down for the crew. Like, hey, we're going into a tricky situation here or we've just gone through something major. Let's get some sugar on deck. Coke is a fantastic way to tell people, just hold it in your mouth, get some sugar going directly into the bloodstream from the mouth, and then take that in. Coke, I also use if people have got, if there are bugs that have got into the food from unsanitary preparation down below decks, or people aren't cleaning the toilet properly, or whatever, they're just getting that kind of like, I feel a bit sick, and it's clear not something they brought on board, it's something they've got when they're on the boat from bacteria. Coca-Cola, a can of Coca-Cola is your first stop. The uh, the healing properties of a can of Coke cannot be underestimated for just, you know, clean pennies. And uh, it gets in your stomach there and whoo, bang, it kills kills off those bacteria pretty quick. But um, yeah, obviously a little bit better for perhaps lubricating the, <laughs> the mouth when talking for uh, an hour and 39. Oh yeah, I should start to bring this to the end here. Hey, else there'll be complaints from the dog walkers that the, um, the dogs are in hospital with uh, worn out legs. Um, cooking safety, yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> the gas, the alcohol, the storage of those things. But also when you're cooking, you're cooking with uh, any kind of hot water, hot pans. You should have your oil, oil skin bottoms on. Waterproof bottoms that are going to stop you from being sprayed by something coming off the stove. Whatever's on the stove should be tightly secured. The stove should never be left unattended, but it should be attended in a manner whereby the person, if it does jump off the stove, that pasta does not end up scalding them very very badly if you're working with any kind of pressurized um, uh, fluid uh, fuels like uh, primer stoves are a bit of out of date now but if you are doing that bear in mind that if you've got the kind of stuff that you're likely to wear on a boat a fleece thermals if that starts to get um, uh, on fire it's going to melt onto your skin now you have to have that's why alcohol is good because you can literally just immediately douse that fire with water and it'll go out and you're done um, Bear in mind that uh, some boats will have those um, galley straps. If you have a galley which is orientated to port or to starboard and you, you can't um, hold yourself in position when it's on the uphill side, they'll often have those straps in play. That's definitely straight out of uh, cruising under sail. Um, I have never used them. And I'll tell you right now where I have never used them. It's never been required because of the layout of the interior of the boats I work on. But also it does just worry me that you are now strapped into a situation where if something's coming at you 
you, you can't really dodge. If a big pan of water is coming off the stove towards you, you can't dodge. So I would say for me personally, I'm not using those, but done safely in the scenario that you're in, okay. Now, if you are, if it's very hot and not likely to be putting on <clears throat> um, waterproofs to try and protect yourself, you have to be aware of what's happening. You have to be aware of what, you know, you can't be like, draining the pasta in the way that you do it at home in the sink with you maybe need two of you to do it you maybe need to put on those big gauntlets which the helmsman uses when it's heavy weather to put them on it's gonna be a lot of smoke riding up here if you've got glasses will you be able to see when the smoke hits the glasses and accurately pour it in the bowl you've got to think every step through and you've got to you know, take this thing to the next level. You might be, as Donna was in that incredible situation in the Pacific, cooking like literally on a on a roller coaster and things can unexpectedly happen and you need to be a, a thought about that. Play the what if game beforehand. Um, I've been in a situation on a boat, I'm just looking at no water here. I've been on a situation on a boat, that's my other note, um, where I've run out of water, like very seriously run out of water. That was in one of my early podcasts talking about doing the round the world race and the water maker stopping working. I've been in a situation where I was drinking um, a cup, 250 ml of fresh water, uh, mixed in with seawater and sugar, um, and, and making that up into about two liters per day whilst crossing through the uh, equator on an open 60 racing in and around the world race. And uh, I can tell you when we finally got to Charleston after two weeks in that uh, situation, no schools, no rain, no extra fluids on board the boat it's a racing boat was mainly relying on the water maker it seemed that the water maker sucked up some kind of chemical from the ocean oil or something from a ship or whatever it was no mechanical uh, repair was possible and even though i used heated water from the engine exhaust to pass through the membrane to try and flush this thing out with soap water as directed by the technical director of the manufacturer um, it would not fix itself I was lying in water that I had brought into the boat to put in an area that was, you know, to race boats. So there's kind of like areas where you can tuck water. I was lying in that to stay cool and staying out of the sun. And when I finally got into that, it, what actually happened was a giant squall off Charleston. I put deep reefs in, so I was like fourth reef. And the, the reefed up bulk of the main, obviously the boom's like 30 foot long. The reefed up bulk of the main just filled up like a bathtub and I got into it. I had my head underwater drinking what I was lying in to be in fresh water. It tasted so sweet and so perfect. And I got this mega revelation for like exactly how serious being dehydrated is. Um, every time now when I'm on a boat and I'm getting hot and I'm getting to the end of like a jug of water or whatever it is, I am always critically aware of that moment on that boat at sea, a thousand miles off the coast of Brazil, when I realized I have just drunk the last of my fresh water reserves. Like, yeah, not not awesome. Although I can remember doing a uh, middle sea, no, not middle sea. What was it? It was a China Sea race, uh, and we ended up the last day in thirty six degree heat. The only thing that was left on board to drink was milk. <laughs> and if you've seen the film Anchorman, you're laughing now. Oh, milk was a bad choice. Okay, so um, that's pretty much that with uh, the things I've got here in my notes. Let me just think about this. If there's anything else I'd like to say about cooking on boats, um, take it seriously. Um, things like you know how you store stuff on the boats where it's stored be aware of crossing between international borders if you're coming from asia going to america you're not going to be able to bring in seeds and milk and the same going into australia and that kind of stuff be very smart for that um be smart obviously as we all know don't let the cockroaches come on board in the in the paper and the cardboard um, um have fun with it how much should you be eating i haven't mentioned that obviously in a normal everyday life 
Um, women supposedly will be eating around um, 2,000 calories a day at sea engaged in activity. Men will probably be up between three and a half and 3,000 calories. Um, in the very depths of the Southern Ocean on your own, I can tell you're up about 5,000 calories. You may well be doing four meals a day. Um, that makes me think of another little detail. Where does the four square meals come from? That's more to do with, or sorry, is it three square meals or four square meals? Three square meals a day. The plates at the tables uh, on the ships of the line back in the day, certainly in the British Navy, um, they were square so that it would tessellate with each other on the table and then your own uh, plate would not be, uh, you know, you would be kind of losing losing space at an already tight table. Um, yeah, I think... Um, take it seriously freezing things beforehand for racing and uh, taking that oh you know what there's one thing i did miss in all this you can freeze stuff and take it on the boat it's a really great idea it's gonna be in the oven but it can often get um forgotten about someone really needs to tend that so it doesn't go from frozen to just completely buggered in uh, in a couple of hours and everybody misses out always have some reverse reserves should i say and some supplies some spares of uh, storm food very easy to make things i'd say like pot noodles are very good for that things that come in their own pot that you can fill up and then pass on deck without having to do anything other than basically boil water that's a very very good idea um the the kind of food i take these days let's finish up with that we've got a couple minutes here um i do have this option to take all of this uh, freeze-dried food on the boat i tend not to now i tend not to um i tend to take like what you would have at home there's some things which are specific there's probably like a higher percentage of candy and chocolate because we know we're going to be doing watches through the night if it's cold we want a little extra something but i tend to take pasta sauces and i take um a meat for the first couple of days of free. I've never yet ever crossed the Atlantic. 29 times I've crossed the Atlantic. I've never once done it with a refrigerator. So <laughs> working up to that one day. But it means that I do not have any food plans which are based on that, ele pardon me, that electrical device uh, running. That's what I think why that's happened. But um, you can make a, a, a solution for your food which um, is based on the normal things you'd have around the house. And then it means that those tools that are in people's hands are similar to what they already know from their home, which again, you know, for me, the sort of sale training I do, maybe there's a transferable skill. Maybe someone learns, oh yeah, I like cooking and, and I get a good response from people and, uh, and make it into something super, super positive. Um, never underestimate how important that job is and someone's doing it and do not give it to the woman on board. Don't be that idiot. That is not smart. Don't do that. It's not cool. That um, role should be changed out for other, other everybody else on the boat. And they should all point and laugh at the person as an adult who cannot cook for themselves. It shouldn't be that the person that can do it has to do it for all the noggins that can't do it. Why don't the noggins get together and work out how to let the person who's been doing it for the rest of their life uh, have a bit of rest and relaxation, enjoy what's going on. God, that pisses me off. People are like, oh, well, the lady cooks like, Jesus, what, what century are you living in? Oh, you, yeah, she's cooking, mate, because you can't. That's why she's doing that. She's saving your ass again. Ah, what else is there to say about all this? Um, uh, oh, you know what? I'll finish off on, a, on, a, on a, a very important one here. Tea. Tea and coffee coming up on deck. If you've got more than one person on your boat, set up a brew list. Set up what they want for tea, how they want it made, what they want for coffee, how they want it made. Um, and then what they want for a cold drink. So that when you look at the person, you just have to say, do you want 
what do you want? And they'll just say tea, coffee, or a cold drink. You don't need to say, oh, and two sugars and milk, and I like a bit of creamer and some lemon, and I like the orange juice, not the pineapple. It gets way too confusing. Just put what they want for tea, what they want for sugar. And then if you forget, you only have to look at the person on deck and remember, hey, do you want coffee or tea? Okay, fine. And then you just go back to the brew list and get the details. You just need to say how much sugar and how much milk they want. And then how do you make a cup of tea? Let's have that discussion. I bet there'll be more emails from this than anything else. There is a British standard on how to make a cup of tea. I've actually been on a Royal Naval vessel with um, Princess Anne on board. She came on board as a like guest commanding officer on our University Royal Naval unit vessel, uh, Charger. And she um, was totally awesome. But uh, we were reminded like how tea was going to happen. Um, there's a way of doing it. Back in the day when it was really expensive cups, you would have porcelain cups which were made of finest china and they could withstand boiling hot water necessary to make tea. As cups got cheaper, as they get older and maybe get uh, microfractures, if you put boiling hot water into them, they will crack. So when you're handing a cup of tea or something to like a member of the royal family or some commanding officer or something, you have to make sure you're not giving them a cracked cup. So what you do is you put the milk in first. And if they're gonna have uh, it with no milk, you put a little bit of cold water in first. And then when that hot, hot water comes in from the kettle, it is not gonna crack the cup. That is why the milk goes in first and it's laid out in the British standard. It's like six, seven, eight, nine or something. There's a particular number, which is the British standard for how you do it. There's British standards for like how you operate hydraulic machinery and you know how every single different thing that happens in operation, but how you make a cup of tea actually has its own standard. The sugar goes in. The great thing is most of these time these days on a boat, we're going to be making the tea in the cup. So you can then, in goes a little bit of milk, which is like the kind of amount of milk that people put into cups of tea. And then you just stir, stir, stir until the cup goes the color that tea should be. And you're going to need a white light to do this because otherwise you cannot judge. You cannot judge under monochrome light how strong tea or coffee is, right? So in it goes, stirry, stirry, stirry. You look at the brew list, make sure you've got the right amount of sugars. Now, in the Navy, certainly, it would always be in porcelain mugs. And uh, they were only ever meant to be like half tied. And when we moved up through the vessel, they would have cling wrap over the top of them. So you just couldn't spill. You couldn't carry more cups of tea than you could carry in one hand. And if you did, you'd be remonstrated. People would remonstrate you for it, right? So um, that's how they do it. The insulated cup boon is awesome, but it can mean that the tea becomes a problem. And let me explain. Um, people say, oh, let's get a cup of tea on the go. Brilliant. Someone goes down below. And now if it's a hot boat, they're now going to boil the arse out of the kettle until it's steaming everywhere and it's radiating loads of heat into the cabin, heating the cabin up. Or if you've got an Arrigo alcohol stove, as we do on Challenger, it's now going to take them like an hour to heat up the, the, the kettle. The deal is that you can make a cup of tea that is fully palatable, and I drink a lot of tea, and I'm English, so it makes me an expert. Um, you can make a completely palatable cup of tea at around 70, 75 Celsius, okay? Here's how it goes. When the kettle, inside the kettle, there are bubbles, there are fish eyes developing on the inside of the kettle, then the kettle has reached a temperature where um, nothing that's living in there, like cryptosporidium or giardia or anything that might be floating around in there, is, is still alive, so you've killed it off. That's a survival thing for if you're out backpacking something, you have to boil the water until there are fish eyes, big round bubbles at the bottom of the kettle. When you've got that, you put a dash of milk in the, the cup, um, you put your sugars in, whatever, and then you pour that in. You'll make a cup of tea that is gonna be hot for about the next 10 minutes, and then it's gonna start cooling off, right? If it goes into an insulated mug, it's gonna be hot for quite a long time. If it's going to a porcelain mug, a little bit less. 
Here's what, when people say I want a cup of tea on the deck of a boat, here's what normally happens. The tea comes up on deck and then we have to do an evolution and all the cups go into the, 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 the locket, the, the um, pouches in the pocket and then whatever happens, all the tea leaks out, it's all over the deck and they lose their cups of tea and everything else. When you say you want a cup of tea, what you're actually saying is in about <clears throat> five to ten minutes, I would like five minutes to imbibe a pretty warm, potentially sweet, somewhat tasty beverage. It's going to make me feel better inside. It's going to hydrate me. Taking on hydration is one of the standard things for um, if uh, if you literally, if you're ma uh, a mariner, if you're a watch uh, uh, officer on a merchant naval ship, the advice coming down from above uh, is that if you start to get tired when you're on watch, the first thing you should do is drink a glass of water. A lot of um, hunger is actually dehydration and a lot of tiredness is dehydration. So they're saying like, when you say, oh, I'd like a cup of tea. Yeah, it's a social moment to bring people together. It's a fun moment. It's kind of marking something. It's tasty. It's, de you know, it's going to help you with dehydration. And it should only go on for a short period of time. Getting a giant insulated cup of tea that's been made by somebody with red light is uh, that then I then have this thing for like another two hours on deck is not useful. It took ages to boil the water. It's going to take ages for it to cool down before I can drink it. Now, if you're on your own, you're at the helm for a long time, totally, I get it. But most of the time when there's like five of you in the cockpit, shall we have tea? Brewlist, don't boil the water too much. Hand it out in cups, which are simple to store if you have to do something, maybe a lid on top. It's pretty warm, but it's going to stop being warm in about 10 or 15 minutes. Get it down your neck where it's useful. Cup of tea ain't useful in the cup. Get it inside you, and then it's all done. Pass the cups back in, and remember, of course, that you can put all the cups in the sink, and you can fill things from above there. Uh, quick last note, uh, instant coffee, for those that don't know it. Coffee grounds on a vessel at sea. If the cafetiere tips over, the coffee grounds are in the bilge, for the rest of the life of the boat, okay? I've been there, I've done it many times. It's not good. Instant coffee, it ain't great. It's not exactly coffee. It's like a coffee-flavored drink. Bear this in mind. It is a um, freeze-dried variant of coffee. So if you overheat it with boiling water, it will burn the beans just the same as it burns the beans when you do it with normal coffee making. So don't make it with giantly hot water. Just make it normally, and it's one... Uh, one dessert spoon, one tablespoon. No, let me get this right. <laughs> when you eat dessert, you eat it with a tablespoon, okay? You eat it with that one that kind of fits in your mouth. That is too much instant coffee. It's a teaspoon, the one that you stir cups of tea up. A heaped cup of, uh, sorry, a heaped teaspoon of instant coffee makes. I have had instant coffee, which has got like, it's sprinkled on top. No, that's just hot water. I've had it with three. Uh, uh, three scoops of, uh, of instant coffee in. I've had it with like tablespoons of coffee in. And then of course the classic where you get your coffee or tea and it's made with salt water. So I've been there, I've done it. So all of this has come directly from the hip as we said that it would, but I think you should get from this that I have low regard for those who can't make a proper nutritious meal and do it effectively and do it tastily and uh, and tidy up after themselves. Um, you you need to get on that. You're you're like you're you're half a person if you can't feed yourself. Um, I do not smile on the fact that the culinary chores fall to the women on board. That is not cool. Um, and I'm very very aware of the physiological benefits and the psychological benefits of food on board. And I give it a huge amount of uh, of importance. So as we approach our two hour mark, I've blown through well who's surprised hey <laughs> who's surprised i tell you the most 
The least surprised person is Phil Backman, who suggested C is for cooking when he knew that I was going <laughs> to talk about this. I'm sure he set himself down with a big vat of coffee, knowing that this was going to go on for a while because he knows that I'm pretty, uh, pretty uh, find this stuff to be very, very important. But um, I hope in there there's some kind of idea of how it's done. That's me looking at it as a professional who is engaged in the business of taking people out onto the water and like keeping them safe, keeping them safe from the perils of the sea, from injury on the boat, and from the making mistakes in how they operate their, their bodies and how they then that affects their mind and that becoming a really miserable experience of being on the water. Do not underestimate how important sea is in the encyclopedia of boating. It is very important, very, very important. So I hope you got something from that. Uh, be looking forward to hearing your um, your uh, thoughts on any of that you can tell me how wrong I am about monochrome light and uh, and I and I won't respond because um, uh, because you're wrong there's always somebody wrong somewhere on the internet somewhere right so <laughs> um, but yeah I hope that you got something from that uh, if you want to email me any thoughts or ideas or ideas for D which will be our next one next week D is for whatever uh, I don't think what that could be deck maybe or what else would be D on a boat? Well, that's for you guys to work out. I'm just here to talk about it. It'll be from the hip as always. I've done this without any notes apart from a couple of uh, ones I just sketched out there in my notepad just to, to keep me going through it. Because the idea was if you're hiring somebody or if you're going out offshore with someone who's a professional sailor, lots of air bunnies going on here as I uh, try and put that in quotes, um, what do they know? You can't just go and like look it up on library on from a library or online. Does this person know how this stuff works? And I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this. I don't always get it right. I don't always get it right. We did the Caribbean 600 on the Volvo 65 Sailing Poland, which was renamed Nova Scotia 1 for that event in 2000 and uh, early 2020. It was like the last event we did. And because of uh, communications mix up between myself and the, the actual captain of that boat, I was just like visiting captain for that. And um, the primary food source which we had for the race which was that boat's own freeze-dried food got left on the dock and we set off on a race that was like three or four days and yours truly along with some very skilled help managed to take the very meager amount of food that was on the boat and that people brought on board and turn what was a very difficult very hungry situation into a vaguely acceptable way of doing it it's a story rather than a misery because we really focused on how this is going to happen when it's going to happen what's in things presented nicely really like over the top support for people and fluids and all the rest of it and we got through was that a three-day race or a four-day race i can never remember with that i always think the caribbean 600 is like a three-day race but i think i've done it in five days a few times but done it like seven or eight times all melding together but um whatever it was the crew were fantastic they understood the situation they accepted it like hey if you want to go back for food then we are out of this race and you've all flown here and paid thousands of dollars to do this this has happened let's deal with it and we move forward and uh in a way it was the the most acid test version of learning how important food is as a boat it, we didn't have any and we had to be very careful what we had and we really focused on it and we got a result it wasn't perhaps what we wanted because we wanted to be fed properly but we got there we did it and we were okay and um yeah just uh be very careful with food and be very careful with uh, what people are doing literally three o'clock in the morning haven't eaten haven't drunk properly and they make that move that takes them over the side of the boat or they get hit by something or injured. And the direct reason that happened is because the skipper was not looking after C is for cooking.
Good. Well, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.